0: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to
1: blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk.
2: Thank you, Mr. President. Recently, Professor Henry Lewis Gates, Jr. was arrested at his home in Cambridge. What does that incident say to you, and what does it say about race relations in America?
0: Well, uh, I I should say at the outset that uh, Skip Gates is a friend, uh, so I may be a little biased here. Uh, I don't know all the facts. What's been reported, though, is that the guy forgot his keys, uh, jimmied his way to get into the house, uh, there was uh, a report called in to the police station that there might be a burglary taking place. So far, so good, right? I mean, if I was trying to jigger in Well, I guess this is my house now, so it probably wouldn't happen. But let's say my old house in Chicago. Um, here I'd get shut. But... So so far, so good. They're they're reporting. The police are doing what they should. There's a call. They go investigate what happens. My understanding is, at that point, uh, Professor Gates is already in his house. The police officer comes in. I'm sure there's some exchange of words, but my understanding is, is that Professor Gates then shows his ID to show that this is his house. And at that point, he gets arrested for disorderly conduct. Um, charges which are later dropped. Now, I don't know, not having been there and not seeing all the facts, what role race played in that. But I think it's fair to say, number one, any of us would be pretty angry. Number two, that the Cambridge police uh, acted stupidly in arresting somebody when there was already proof that they were in their own home. And number three, what I think we know separate and apart from this incident, is that uh, there is a long history in this country of African Americans and Latinos uh, being stopped by law enforcement disproportionately. and that, That's just a fact. As you know, Lynn, uh, when I was in the state legislature in Illinois, we worked on a racial profiling uh, bill because there was indisputable evidence that blacks and Hispanics were being stopped disproportionately. Uh, and that is a sign, an example of how you know, race remains a factor in the society. That doesn't lessen the incredible progress that has been made. I am standing here as testimony to the progress that's been made. And yet, the fact of the matter is, is that you know, this still haunts us and uh, even when there are honest misunderstandings, the fact that blacks and Hispanics are picked up more frequently and oftentimes for no cause casts suspicion even when there is good cause. And that's why I think uh, the more that we're working with local law enforcement to I- improve uh, policing techniques so that we're eliminating potential bias, um, the safer everybody's going to be. All right? Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Damn Obama! I need to help Gibbs out a little bit here.
2: The new
0: I, you know, the uh, if you got to, you got to do a job, do it yourself. Um, I, I wanted to address you guys directly because uh, over the last day and a half, uh, obviously there's been all sorts of controversy around uh, the incident that happened in Cambridge with uh Professor Gates in the police department there. Uh I actually just had a conversation with uh Sergeant Jim Crawley, uh the officer involved. Uh, and uh, I have to tell you that as I said yesterday, uh my impression uh, of him was that he was uh a outstanding police officer uh and a good man and that was confirmed in the phone conversation and I told him that. Um, and I because uh, this has been ratcheting up, uh, and I obviously uh, helped to contribute ratcheting it up. Uh, I want to make clear that uh, in my choice of words, I think I unfortunately uh, gave an impression uh, that I was maligning the Cambridge Police Department or Sergeant Crawley specifically. Uh, and I could have calibrated those words differently. And I told this to uh, Sergeant Crawley. Uh, I continue to believe, based on what I have heard, that uh, there was an overreaction in uh, pulling Professor Gates uh, out of his home to the station. I also continue to believe, based on what I heard, that uh, Professor Gates probably. Overreacted as well. Uh, my sense is you've got two good people uh, in a circumstance uh, in which uh, neither of them uh, were able to resolve the incident in the way that it should have been resolved and the way they would have liked it to be resolved. Uh, the fact that it has garnered so much attention, I think, is a testimony to the fact that these are issues that are still very sensitive here in america uh... and you know so to the extent that my choice of words didn't illuminate but rather contributed to more media frenzy i think that was unfortunate uh, what i'd like to do then is make sure that everybody steps back for a moment recognizes that these are two decent people uh... not extrapolate too much from the facts but as I said at the press conference, uh, be mindful of the fact that because of our history, because of the difficulties of the past, um, you know, African Americans are sensitive to these issues. And uh, even when you've got a police officer who uh, has a fine track record on racial sensitivity. Uh, Interactions between police officers and uh, the African American community can sometimes be fraught with misunderstanding. Um, my hope is is that as a consequence of this event, uh, this ends up being what's called a teachable moment, where all of us, uh, instead of pumping up the volume, spend a little more time listening to each other uh, and try to focus on how we can generally improve. Uh, relations between police officers and minority communities, uh, and that instead of flinging accusations, uh, we can uh, all be a little more reflective in terms of what we can do uh, to contribute to uh, more unity. Lord knows we need it right now. Uh, because over the last two days, as we've discussed this issue, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but nobody's been paying much attention to health care. <laughs> uh, I will not use this time to spend uh, more words on health care, although I can't guarantee that that will be true next week. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to emphasize that um, one last point I guess I'd make. So, there are some who say that as president, uh, i shouldn't have stepped into this at all because it's a local issue uh, i have to tell you that uh, that thing that part of it i disagree with um, the fact that this has become such a big issue i think is indicative of the fact that you know, uh, race is still a troubling aspect of our society uh... whether i were black or white uh... i think that uh, me commenting on this uh... and hopefully contributing to constructive as opposed to uh, negative, uh... understandings about the issue uh... is part of my portfolio So, uh, at the end of the conversation there was discussion about uh... uh in my conversation with uh, sergeant crawley there was discussion about uh... he and i uh, and uh, Professor Gates having a beer here in the White House. Uh, we don't know if that's scheduled yet, but um, uh, but we may put that together. He also uh, did say uh, he wanted to find out if there was a way of getting the press off his lawn. Uh, I am, I informed him that uh, I can't get the press off my lawn. <laughs> he pointed out that my lawn is bigger than his lawn. Uh, but if anybody has any connections to the uh, Boston press as well as national press. Uh, Sergeant Crawley would be happy for you to stop
1: trampling his grass. All right.
0: Thank you, guys. Damn you, Obama.
1: Context of white supremacy. Justice Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, Friday. November 23rd, 2012, so I have been told. We will be... <laughs> uh, it is so good to hear from 1804 and the rest of the folks. Um, it's not quite time for questions. <laughs> I see hands up already. That is great. I have an active and uh, participating audience, uh, but I will get hands uh, a little bit into the program I will definitely get hands and 1804 you'll be the first one uh, that I open up Um, see hands so quickly threw me off my train of thought Uh, that those two sound clips are from 2009 I had kind of forgotten when people talk about what happened with uh, Dr. Gates and that whole situation I had forgot that that was pretty early in uh, President Obama's first term Uh, that all that took place in the summer of 2009 so he'd only been in office um what at that point about six, seven months, uh when all that went down uh, in two thousand nine. So pretty early on, uh in his time in office, I will also share for listeners, uh if you are into digging into the archives of the cows, uh suspected white supremacist doctor Peggy McIntosh. She uh has done the uh very popular article on white privilege and band aids and all the different benefits that white people get as a result of the system of white supremacy. She was a guest on the program back in August of 2009 and we talked about this incident because it was pretty fresh news at the time and she said that number one she knew as soon as he came out and said that the officers acted stupidly she said oh he is going to get in trouble with white people Uh, she said that immediately she said uh... on the program she said i know white people uh... that is not gonna fly having a non-white person i don't care if it's a janitor secretary of state president whatever uh... saying that you know a white person acted stupidly in their treatment of a non-white person that was number one and the second thing that she uh, shared while she was on the program was that he is not in charge Uh, that he cannot anyone who expects that he is going to be able to go in and do whatever he wants to and uh, I'm president of the United States Uh, we're ending the drug war and Attorney General Eric Holder is going to be going after anybody uh, who even thinks about mistreating non-white people Uh, it does not work that way Uh, and she explained that uh, on the program it's back in August of 2000 uh, 2009 she also practiced racism white supremacy in my opinion on the broadcast but I thought that was one moment where she was revealing truth you can check it out if you are interested come to your own conclusions Uh, moving forward with the broadcast uh... this is segment number five in our study session on president obama's autobiography dreams from my father i think we should have one more session uh... final session should be uh... next friday white people permitting, provided we don't float away um, again you know be thinking of other books that you would like to do study sessions on uh... we had already had i think quite a few people have voted uh... for books that they would like to do uh George Orwell's 1984 um, Hitler's Mein Kampf those are two the two top choices I would say right now I think number 3 would be uh Brave New World uh Alex uh Huxley I think that's in third uh cast a vote you can uh submit your votes on uh my Facebook page not the cows group cuz it's too many people post there and I do not check it regularly uh you should put it on my page uh my Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. You can put it on my page. You can uh, email it to me until justice at gmail dot com uh whatever your choice is. I think right now nineteen eighty four has the most votes. Um so that looks like it might be the next uh, study session, Uh, but vote if you have other books that you uh, would like to check out. As I said, we had uh, one of our listeners, Investors. She wanted to do uh, Toni Morrison's Tar Baby. Uh, I'm a big fan of Morrison's work, so that's uh, definitely something I'd be down to do as well. Uh, If you have other books uh, that you would like to do, uh, if you want to vote, let me know, and we'll make a decision. Uh, We'll have one more week with this one, and then we'll be moving on to the next book. Uh, again keep in mind i have no interest in doing any more abridged books uh president obama's audiobook for dreams from my father is abridged and i hate that uh they edited out so many important portions of the text uh where he is in my view revealing truth about racism and white supremacy um, i've been trying to include those as we go i said last week i was so discombobulated because they redacted an entire chapter and I mean that is that is like nails on a chalkboard that's like having to listen to uh, a white person ramble uh, and not answer your question for five hours I mean I I just I cannot believe that uh, that you would be reading a book that important uh, from the president of the United States and they have snatched a whole chapter out Uh, I had been saying the whole time I'm chomping at the bit I'm waiting for the segments where he talks about his own experience being in a tragic arrangement, sexual relationship with a white woman—it's uh, in the book, but they removed that from the audio book, and it was in that chapter that they removed last week. Uh, I was trying to kind of skim through the chapter really quick as I realized that they had taken that whole chapter out of the book uh... but i just you know wasn't able to get it on the fly uh, i found that section and i will read that before we proceed this week so this is in chapter eleven if anyone is following along as i have encouraged folks to do with the study session uh... to kind of have the the book the unedited book with you so you can follow along as we read i'll read this really quick and then we'll go ahead and and get started with the first audio segment Um, and then we'll open the lines up and get questions 1804 and the rest of the folks uh, very eager to hear your commentary about uh, President Obama's autobiography Uh, this is the section that they left out just to give you a little context this is uh, President Obama is uh, talking with his sister Alma Uh, she has come to visit and they're discussing uh, different things about their life and what have you Uh, and so he writes Uh, I went to the refrigerator and pulled out two green peppers, setting them on the cutting board. Well, there was a woman in New York that I loved. She was white. She had dark hair and specks of green in her eyes. Her voice sounded like a wind chime. We saw each other for almost a year, on the weekends mostly, sometimes in her apartment, sometimes in mine you know how you can fall into your own private world just two people hidden and warm your own language your own customs that's how it was anyway one weekend she invited me to her family's country house the parents were there and they were very nice very gracious it was autumn beautiful with woods all around us and we paddled a canoe across this round icy lake full of small gold leaves that collected along the shore. The family knew every inch of the land. They knew how the hills had formed, how the glacial drifts had created the lake, the names of the earliest white settlers, their ancestors, and before that, the names of the Indians who once hunted the land. I'm just going to pause here for all of the malarkey when you hear white people saying, we don't know where this nigga president was born. We don't know who his dad is. Was he born in Kenya? Was he born in Africa? We don't know. We don't know anything about this guy. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Continuing. The house was very old. Her grandfather's house. He had inherited, inherited it from his grandfather. The library was filled with old books and pictures of the grandfather with famous people he had known. Presidents, diplomats, industrialists. There was this tremendous gravity to the room. Standing in that room, I realized that our two worlds, my friends and mine, were as distant from each other as Kenya is from Germany and I knew that if we stayed together, I'd eventually live in hers. After all, I'd been doing it most of my life. Between the two of us, I was the one who knew how to live as an outsider. So what happened? I shrugged. I pushed her away. We started to fight. We started thinking about the future. And it pressed in on our warm little world one night I took her to see a new play by a black playwright it was a very angry play but very funny typical black American humor the audience was mostly black and everybody was laughing and clapping and hollering like they were in church after the play was over my friend started talking about why black people were so angry all the time I said it was a matter of remembering. Nobody asks why Jews remember the Holocaust. I think I said, and she said that's different, and I said it wasn't, and she said that anger was just a dead end. We had a big fight right in front of the theater. When we got back to the car, she started crying. She couldn't be black, she said she would if she could but she couldn't she could only be herself and wasn't that enough that's a sad story Barack I suppose maybe even if she'd been black it still wouldn't have worked out I mean there are several black ladies out there who've broken my heart just as good I smiled and scraped the cut-up peppers into the pot and then turned back to Alma the thing is I said no longer smiling. Whenever I think back to what my friend said to me that night outside the theater, it somehow makes me ashamed. Do you ever hear from her? I got a postcard at Christmas. She's happy now. She's met someone, and I have my work. Is that enough? Sometimes. They go on about other aspects of their life, their father's life, but Very important position, I think. Um, Excuse me. Very important uh, section uh, of the text, giving his thoughts. This issue is going to come up uh, again in the text, and I think some of it is going to come up this week uh, about tragic arrangements uh, and how that impacts the non-white people in those uh, situations. But uh, real important portion uh, of the book. We'll be looking forward if folks listening in have any thoughts on that. Anywho. We will proceed uh, with the first section of the audiobook. I'll give out the number real quick uh, so folks can dial in. As soon as this uh, section ends, I'll open the phone lines and be looking forward to hearing feedback. The number is 760 569 and the code is 564-943. Pound. Press star six uh, if you would like to participate. Again, I will hit the phone lines as soon as we finish up with the first section of the audiobook. We will get started. Section number one President Barack Obama, Dreams from My Father.
0: The day before Thanksgiving, Harold Washington died. It occurred without warning. Only a few months earlier, Harold had won reelection handily beating his white opponents, breaking the deadlock that had prevailed in the city for the previous four years. He had run a cautious campaign this time out, professionally managed, without any of the fervor of 1983, a campaign of consolidation, of balanced budgets and public works. He reached out to some of the old-time machine politicians, the Irish and the Poles, ready to make peace. The business community sent him their checks, resigned to his presence. So secure was Harold in his power that rumblings of discontent had finally surfaced within his own base, among black nationalists upset at his willingness to cut whites and Hispanics into the action, among activists disappointed with his failure to tackle poverty head-on, and among people who preferred the dream to the reality, impotence to compromise. Harold didn't pay such critics much attention. He saw no reason to take any big risks, no reason to hurry. He said he'd be mayor for the next twenty years and then death, sudden, simple, final, almost ridiculous in its ordinariness, the heart of an overweight man giving way. It rained that weekend, cold and steady. In the neighborhood, the streets were silent. Indoors and outside, people cried. The black radio stations replayed Harold's speeches, hour after hour, trying to summon the dead. At City Hall, The lines wound around several blocks as mourners visited the body, lying in state. Everywhere, black people appeared dazed, stricken, uncertain of direction, frightened of the future. By the time of the funeral, Washington loyalists had worked through the initial shock. They began to meet, regroup, trying to decide on a strategy for maintaining control, trying to select Harold's rightful heir. But it was too late for that. There was no political organization in place. No clearly defined principles to follow. The entire of black politics had centered on one man, who radiated like the sun. Now that he was gone, no one could agree on what that presence had meant. The Loyalists squabbled, factions emerged, rumors flew. By Monday, the day the city council was to select a new mayor to serve until the special election, the coalition that had first put Harold in office was all but extinguished. I went down to City Hall that evening to watch the second death. People, mostly black, had been gathered outside the city council's chambers since late afternoon. Old people, curiosity seekers, men and women with banners and signs. They shouted at the black alderman who had cut deals with the white bloc. They waved dollar bills at the soft-spoken black alderman, a holdover from machine days, behind whom the white aldermen had thrown their support. They called this man a sellout and an Uncle Tom. They chanted and stomped and swore never to leave. But Power was patient and knew what it wanted. Power could outweight slogans and prayers and candlelight vigils. Around midnight, just before the council got around to taking a vote, the door of the chambers opened briefly, and I saw two aldermen off in a huddle. One, black, had been Harold's man. The other, white, Bredoliak's. They whispered now, smiling briefly then looking out at the still-chanting crowds and quickly suppressing their smiles, large, fleshy men in double-breasted suits, with the same look of hunger in their eyes, men who knew the score. I left after that. I pushed through the crowds that overflowed into the street and began walking across Daly Plaza, toward my car. The wind whipped up, cold and sharp as a blade, and I watched a handmade sign tumble past me. His spirit lives on the sign read in heavy block letters. And beneath the words, that picture I had seen so many times while waiting for a chair in Smitty's shop the handsome, grizzled face, the indulgent smile, the twinkling eyes now blowing across the empty space as easily as an autumn leaf. The months passed at a breathless pace, with constant reminders of all the things left undone. We worked with a citywide coalition in support of school reform. We held a series of joint meetings with Mexicans in the southeast side to craft a common environmental strategy for the region. I drove Johnny nuts, trying to cram him with the things that had taken me three years to learn. In February, I received my acceptance from Harvard Law School. The letter came with a thick packet of information. It reminded me of the packet I'd received from Punahou that summer 14 years earlier. I remembered how Gramps had stayed up the whole night, reading from the catalog about music lessons and advanced placement courses, glee clubs and baccalaureates, how he had waved the catalog and told me it would be my meal ticket, that the contacts I'd made at a school like Punahou would last me a lifetime, that I would move in charmed circles and have all the opportunities that he had never had. I remember how, at the end of the evening, He had smiled and tussled my hair, his breath smelling of whiskey, his eyes shining as if he were about to cry. And I had smiled back at him, pretending to understand, but actually wishing I was still in Indonesia, running barefoot along a paddy field, with my feet sinking in the cool, wet mud, part of a chain of other brown boys chasing after a tattered kite. I felt something like that now. I had scheduled a luncheon that week at our office for the 20 or so ministers whose churches had agreed to join the organization. Most of the ministers we'd invited showed up, as did most of our key leadership. Together we discussed strategies for the coming year. We set dates for a training retreat, agreed on a schedule of dues, talked about the continued need to recruit more churches. When we were finally finished, I announced that I would be leaving in May and that Johnny would be taking over as director. That Sunday, I woke up at 6 a.m. I shaved, brushed the lint from my only suit, and arrived at the church by 7.30. Most of the pews were already filled. A white-gloved usher led me past elderly matrons in wide-plumaged hats, tall, unsmiling men in suits and ties and mud-cloth koofies, children in their Sunday best. I shunted through to the center of a row and stuffed myself between a plump older woman, who failed to scoot over, and a young family of four, the father already sweating in his coarse woolen jacket, the mother telling the two young boys beside her to stop kicking each other. "'Where's God?' I overheard the toddler ask his brother. "'Shut up,' the older boy replied. "'Both of you settle down right now,' the mother said. As the congregation joined in song, the deacons, then Reverend Wright, appeared beneath the large cross that hung from the rafters. The reverend remained silent while devotions were read, scanning the faces in front of him watching the collection basket pass from hand to hand. When the collection was over, he stepped up to the pulpit and read the names of those who had passed away that week, those who were ailing, each name causing a flutter somewhere in the crowd, the murmur of recognition. Let us join hands, the Reverend said, as we kneel and pray at the foot of an old rugged cross. Yes. Lord, we come first to thank you for what you've already done for us. We come to thank you most of all for Jesus. Lord, we come from different walks of life, some considered high and some low, but all on equal ground at the foot of this cross. Lord, thank you. For Jesus, Lord, our burden bearer and heavy load share, we thank you. The title of Reverend Wright's sermon that morning was The Audacity of Hope. He began with a passage from the book of Samuel, the story of Hannah, who, barren and taunted by her rivals, had wept and shaken in prayer before her God. The story reminded him, Reverend Wright said, of a sermon a fellow pastor had preached at a conference some years before, in which the pastor described going to a museum and being confronted by a painting titled Hope. The painting depicts a harpist, Reverend Wright explained, a woman who at first glance appears to be sitting atop a great mountain. Until you take a closer look and see that the woman is bruised and bloodied, Dressed in tattered rags, the harp reduced to a single frayed string. Your eye is then drawn down to the scene below, down to the valley below, where everywhere are the ravages of famine, the drumbeat of war, a world groaning under strife and deprivation. It is this world, a world where cruise ships throw away more food in a day than most residents of Port-au-Prince see in a year, where white folks' greed runs a world in need, apartheid in one hemisphere, apathy in another hemisphere, That's the world on which hope sits. And so it went, a meditation on a fallen world. While the boys next to me doodled on their church bulletin, Reverend Wright spoke of Sharpsville and Hiroshima, the callousness of policymakers in the White House and in the State House. As the sermon unfolded, though, the stories of strife became more prosaic, the pain more immediate. The Reverend spoke of the hardship that the congregation would face tomorrow. The pain of those far from the mountain top, worrying about paying the light bill, but also the pain of those closer to the metaphorical summit, the middle-class woman who seems to have all her worldly needs taken care of, but whose husband is treating her like the maid, the house service, the jitney service, and the escort service all rolled into one. The child whose wealthy parents worry more about the texture of the hair on the outside of the head than the quality of the education inside the head. Isn't that the world that each of us stands on. Yes, sir. Like Hannah, we've known bitter times. Daily we face rejection and despair. Say it now. And yet consider once again the painting before us. Hope. Like Hannah, that harpist is looking upwards. A few faint notes floating upward toward the heavens. She dares to hope she has the audacity to make music and praise God on the one string she has left People began to shout, to rise from their seats and clap and cry out, a forceful wind carrying the Reverend's voice up into the rafters. As I watched and listened from my seat, I began to hear all the notes from the past three years swirl about me. The courage and fear of women like Ruby, the race pride and anger of men like Rafik, the desire to let go, the desire to escape, the desire to give oneself up to a God that could somehow put a floor on despair. And in that single note, hope, I heard something else. At the foot of that cross, inside the thousands of churches across the city, I imagined the stories of ordinary black people merging with the stories of David and Goliath, Moses and Pharaoh, the Christians in the lion's den, Ezekiel's field of dry bones. These stories of survival and freedom and hope became our story, my story. The blood that had spilled was our blood, the tears our tears, until this black church, on this bright day, seemed once more a vessel carrying the story of a people into future generations and into a larger world. Our trials and triumphs became at once unique and universal, black and more than black. In chronicling our journey, the stories and songs gave us a means to reclaim memories that we didn't need to feel shamed about, memories more accessible than those of ancient Egypt, memories that all people might study and cherish, and with which we could start to rebuild. And if a part of me continued to feel that this Sunday communion sometimes simplified our condition, that it could sometimes disguise or suppress the very real conflicts among us, and would fulfill its promise only through action, I also felt, for the first time, how that spirit carried within it, nascent, incomplete, the possibility of moving beyond our narrow dreams. The audacity of hope. I still remember my grandmother, singing in the house. There's a bright side somewhere, don't rest till you find it. The audacity of hope. Times when we couldn't pay the bills. Times when it looked like I wasn't ever going to amount to anything. At the age of fifteen, busted for grand larceny auto theft, and yet and still my mama and daddy would break into a song. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Thank you, Lord. And it made no sense to me, this singing. Why were they thanking him for all of their troubles? I'd ask myself. But see, I was only looking at the horizontal dimensions of their lives. I didn't understand that they were talking about the vertical dimension, about their relationship to God. I didn't understand that they were thanking him in advance for all that they dared to hope for in me. Oh, I thank you, Jesus, for not letting go of me when I let go of you. Oh, yes, Jesus, I thank you. And the choir lifted back up into song, and the congregation began to applaud those who were walking to the altar to accept Reverend Wright's call, and I felt a light touch on the top of my hand. I looked down to see the older of the two boys sitting beside me, his face slightly apprehensive as he handed me a pocket tissue. Beside him, his mother glanced at me with a faint smile before turning back toward the altar. It was only when I thanked the boy that I felt the tears running down my cheeks. Oh, Jesus, I heard the older woman beside me whisper softly. Thank you for carrying us this far. Kenyatta International Airport was almost empty. Officials sipped at their morning tea as they checked over passports. In the baggage area, a creaky conveyor belt slowly disgorged luggage. Amo was nowhere in sight, so I took a seat on my carry-on bag and lit a cigarette. After a few minutes, a security guard with a wooden club started to walk toward me. I looked around for an ashtray, thinking I must be in a no-smoking area, but instead of scolding me, the guard smiled and asked if I had another cigarette to spare. This is your first trip to Kenya, yes? he asked as I gave him a light. That's right. I see. He squatted down beside me. You are from America. You know my brother's son, perhaps, Samson Otieno. He is studying engineering in Texas. I told him that I'd never been to Texas, and so hadn't had the opportunity to meet his nephew. This seemed to disappoint him, and he took several puffs from his cigarette in quick succession. By this time, the last of the other passengers on my flight had left the terminal. I asked the guard if any more bags were coming. He shook his head doubtfully. I don't think so, he said. But if you will just wait here, I'll find someone who can help you. He disappeared around a narrow corridor, and I stood up to stretch my back. The rush of anticipation had drained away, and I smiled with the memory of the homecoming I had once imagined for myself—clouds lifting, old demons fleeing, the earth trembling as ancestors rose up in celebration. Instead, I felt tired and abandoned. I was about to search for a telephone when the security guard reappeared with a strikingly beautiful woman, dark, slender, close to six feet tall, dressed in a British Airways uniform. She introduced herself as Miss Omoro and explained that my bag had probably been sent on to Johannesburg by mistake. "'I'm awfully sorry about the inconvenience,' she said. "'If you'll just fill out this form, we can call Johannesburg and have it delivered to you as soon as the next flight comes in.' I completed the form and Miss Omoro gave it the once-over before looking back at me. "'You wouldn't be related to Dr. Obama by any chance,' she asked. "'Well, yes, he he was my father.' Miss Omoro smiled sympathetically. "'I'm very sorry about his passing.' Your father was a close friend of my family's. He would often come to our house when I was a child. We began to talk about my visit, and she told me of her studies in London as well as her interest in traveling to the States. I found myself trying to prolong the conversation, encouraged less by Miss Omoro's beauty, she had mentioned a fiancé, than by the fact that she recognized my name. That had never happened before, I realized, not in Hawaii, not in Indonesia, not in L.A. or New York or Chicago. For the first time in my life, I felt the comfort, The firmness of identity that a name might provide, how it could carry an entire history in other people's memories, so that they might nod and say knowingly, Oh, you're so-and-so's son. No one here in Kenya would ask how to spell my name or mangle it with an unfamiliar tongue. My name belonged, and so I belonged, drawn into a web of relationships, alliances, and grudges that I did not yet understand. Paruck. I turned to see Alma jumping up and down behind another guard who wasn't letting her pass into the baggage area. I excused myself and rushed over to her, and we laughed and hugged as silly as the first time we'd met. A tall, brown-skinned woman was smiling beside us, and Alma turned and said, Barak, this is our auntie Zeituni, our father's sister. Welcome home, Zeituni said, kissing me on both cheeks. I told him about my bag and said there was someone here who had known the old man, but when I looked back to where I'd been standing, Miss Omoro was nowhere in sight. I asked the security guard where she had gone. He shrugged and said that she must have left for the day. Alma drove an old baby blue Volkswagen Beetle. The car was something of a business venture for her. Since Kenyan nationals living abroad could ship a car back to Kenya free of a hefty import tax, she had figured that she could use it during the year that she'd be teaching at the University of Nairobi and then sell it for the cost of shipping and perhaps a small profit. Unfortunately, the engine had come down with a tubercular knock, and the muffler had fallen off on the way to the airport. As we sputtered out onto the four-lane highway, Alma clutching the steering wheel with both hands, I couldn't keep from laughing. "'Should I get out and push?' Zaytuni frowned. "'Hey, Betty, don't say anything about this car. This is a beautiful car. It just needs some new paint. In fact, Alma has already promised that I will have this car after she leaves.' Alma shook her head. "'Your aunt is trying to cheat me now, Barak. I promised we would talk about it, that is all.' "'What's there to talk about?' Zaytuni said, winking at me. "'I tell you, Alma, I will give you the best price.' The two of them began to talk at the same time, asking how my trip had been, telling me all the plans they had made, listing all the people I had to see. Wide plains stretched out on either side of the road, savannah grass mostly, an occasional thorn tree against the horizon, a landscape that seemed at once ancient and raw. Gradually the traffic thickened, and crowds began to pour out of the countryside on their way to work, the men still buttoning their flimsy shirts, the women straight-backed, their heads wrapped in bright-colored scarves. Cars meandered across lanes and roundabouts, dodging potholes, bicycles, and pedestrians, while rickety jitneys, called matatus, I was told, stopped without any warning to cram on more passengers. It all seemed strangely familiar, as if I had been down the same road before. And then I remembered other mornings, in Indonesia, with my mother and Lolo talking in the front seat, the same smell of burning wood and diesel, the same stillness that lingered at the center of the morning rush, the same look on people's faces as they made their way into a new day, with few expectations other than making it through, and perhaps a mild hope that their luck would change, or at least hold out. We went to drop off Zaituni at Kenya Breweries, a large, drab complex where she worked as a computer programmer. Stepping out of the car, she leaned over again to kiss me on the cheek, then wagged her finger at Alma. You take good care of Betty now, she said. Make sure he doesn't get lost again. Once we were back on the highway, I asked Alma what Zaituni had meant about my getting lost. Alma shrugged. It's a common expression here, she said. Usually it means a person hasn't seen you in a while. You've been lost, they'll say. Or, don't get lost. Sometimes it has a more serious meaning. Let's say a son or husband moves to the city or to the west, like our Uncle Omar in Boston. They promise to return after completing school. They say they'll send for the family once they get settled. At first they write once a week. Then it's just once a month. Then they stop writing completely. No one sees them again. They've been lost, you see even if people know where they are. The Volkswagen struggled up an ascending road, shaded by thick groves of eucalyptus and liana vines. Elegant old homes receded behind the hedges and flower beds. Homes that had once been exclusively British, Alma said, but that now mostly served government officials and foreign embassy staffs. At the top of the rise, we made a sharp right, and parked at the end of a gravel driveway next to a yellow two-story apartment building that the university rented out to its faculty. A huge lawn sloped down from the apartment to meet patches of banana trees and high forest, and, further down, a narrow murky stream that ran through a wide gully pitted with stones. Alma's apartment, a small comfortable space with French doors that let sunlight wash through the rooms, was on the first floor. There were stacks of books everywhere, and a collage of photographs hanging on one wall, studio portraits and Polaroid shots, a patchwork of family that Alma had stitched together for herself. Above Alma's bed, I noticed a large poster of a black woman, her face tilted upward toward an unfolding blossom, the words, I have a dream, printed below. "'So what's your dream, Alma?' I said, setting down my bags. Alma laughed. "'That's my biggest problem, Barak. Too many dreams. A woman with dreams always has problems.' My exhaustion from the trip must have showed, because Alma suggested that I take a nap while she went to the university to teach her class. I dropped onto the cot she'd prepared and fell asleep to the buzz of insects outside the window. When I awoke, it was dusk, and Alma was still gone. From the kitchen, I noticed a troop of black-faced monkeys gathered beneath a banyan tree. The older ones sat warily at the tree's base, watching with knotted brows as pups scampered about through the long, winding roots. Rinsing my face in the sink, I put water on for tea, then opened the door that led into the yard. The monkeys all froze in their tracks. Their eyes turned toward me in unison. A few feet away, the air filled with the beat of huge green wings, and I watched the dreamy ascent of a long-necked bird as it sent out a series of deep-throated cries and drifted towards distant canopies. The next morning we walked into town and wandered without any particular destination in mind, just taking in the sights. The city center was smaller than I'd expected, with much of the colonial architecture still intact. Row after row of worn, whitewashed stucco from the days when Nairobi was little more than an outpost to service British railway construction. Alongside these buildings, another city emerged, a city of high-rise offices and elegant shops, hotels with lobbies that seemed barely distinguishable from their counterparts in Singapore or Atlanta. It was an intoxicating, elusive mixture, a contrast that seemed to repeat itself wherever we went, in front of the Mercedes-Benz dealership, where a train of Maasai women passed by on the way to market. Their heads shaven clean, their slender bodies wrapped in red shukas, their earlobes elongated and ringed with bright beads, or at the entrance of an open-air mosque, where we watched a group of bank officers carefully remove their wingtip shoes and bathe their feet before joining farmers and ditch diggers in afternoon prayer. It was as if Nairobi's history refused to settle in orderly layers, as if what was then and what was now fell in constant noisy collision. That evening we drove east to Keriako a sprawling apartment complex surrounded by dirt lots. The moon had dropped behind thick clouds, and light drizzle had begun to fall. At the top of three flights, Alma pushed against a door that was slightly ajar. Betty, you've finally come! A short, stocky woman with a cheerful brown face gave me a tight squeeze around the waist. Behind her were fifteen or so people, all of them smiling and waving like a crowd at a parade. The short woman looked up at me and frowned. You don't remember me, do you? I'm your aunt Jane. It's me that called you when your father died. She smiled and took me by the hand. Come, you must meet everybody here. Zaituni you have already met. This, she said, leading me to a handsome older woman in a green patterned dress. This is my sister, Kazia. She is mother to Alma and to Roy Obama. Kazia took my hand and said my name together with a few words of Swahili. She says, her other son has finally come home, Jane said. My son. Kazir repeated in English, nodding and pulling me into a hug. My son has come home. We continued around the room, shaking hands with aunts, cousins, nephews, and nieces. Everyone greeted me with cheerful curiosity but very little awkwardness, as if meeting a relative for the first time was an everyday occurrence. I brought a bag of chocolates for the children, and they gathered around me with polite stares as the adults tried to explain who I was. I noticed a young man, sixteen or seventeen, standing against the wall with a watchful expression. That's one of your brothers, Alma said to me. Bernard. I went over to the young man and we shook hands, studying each other's faces. I found myself at a loss for words, but managed to ask him how he had been. Fine, I guess, he answered softly, which brought a round of laughter from everyone. After the introductions were over, Jane pushed me towards a small table set with bowls of goat curry, fried fish, collards, and rice. As we ate, people asked me about everyone back in Hawaii, and I tried to describe my life in Chicago and my work as an organizer. They nodded politely, but seemed a bit puzzled. So I mentioned that I'd be studying law at Harvard in the fall. Ah, this is good, Betty, Jane said as she sucked on a bone from the curry. Your father studied at this school, Harvard. You will make us all proud just like him. You see, Bernard, you must study hard like your brother. Bernard thinks he's going to be a football star, Zaituni said. I turned to Bernard. Is that right, Bernard? No, he said, uncomfortable that he had attracted attention. I used to play, that's all. Well, maybe we can play sometime. He shook his head. I like to play basketball now, he said earnestly. Like Magic Johnson. The meal smothered some of the initial excitement, and the children turned to a large black-and-white TV that was showing the munificence of the president. The president opens a school. The president denounces foreign journalists and various communist elements the president encourages the nation to follow the path of nyayo footsteps towards progress i went with alma to see the rest of the apartment which consisted of two bedrooms both jammed from one end to the other with old mattresses how many people live here i asked i'm not sure right now alma said it always changes jane doesn't know how to say no to anybody so any relative who moves to the city or loses a job ends up here sometimes they stay a long time or they leave their children here the old man and my mum left Bernard here a lot. Jane practically raised him. Can she afford it? Not really. She has a job as a telephone operator, which doesn't pay so much. She doesn't complain, though. She can't have her own children, so she looks after others. We returned to the living room, and I sank down into an old sofa. In the kitchen, Zaituni directed the younger women in cleaning the dishes. A few of the children were now arguing about the chocolate I'd brought. I let my eyes wander over the scene, the well-worn furniture, the two-year-old calendar, the fading photographs, the blue ceramic cherubs that sat on linen doilies. It was just like the projects in Chicago, I realized, the same chain of mothers and daughters and children, the same noise of gossip and TV, the perpetual motion of cooking and cleaning and nursing hurts large and small, the same absence of men. We said our goodbyes around ten, promising to visit each and every relative in turn. As we walked to the door, Jane pulled us aside and lowered her voice. You need to take Betty to see your aunt Sarah, she whispered to Alma, and then to me. Sarah is your father's older sister, the firstborn. She wants to see you very badly. Of course, I said. But why wasn't she here tonight? Does she live far away? Jane looked at Alma, and some unspoken thought passed between them. Come on, Barak, Alma said finally. I'll explain it to you in the car. The roads were empty and slick with rain. Jane is right, Barak. "'Alma told me as we passed the university. "'You should go see Sarah, but I won't go with you. "'Why not? "'It's this business with the old man's estate. Sarah is one of the people who has disputed the will. "'She's been telling people that Roy, Bernard, myself, "'that none of us are the old man's children.' "'Alma sighed. "'I don't know. "'A part of me sympathizes with her. "'She's had a hard life. "'She never had the chances the old man had, you see, "'to study or go abroad. "'It made her very bitter.' She thinks that somehow my mom, myself, that we are to blame for his situation. But how much could the old man's estate be worth? Not much, Alma said. Maybe a small government pension, a piece of worthless land. I tried to stay out of it. Whatever is there has probably been spent on lawyers by now. But you see, everyone expected so much from the old man. He made them think that he had everything, even when he had nothing. So now, instead of getting on with their lives, they just wait and argue among themselves, thinking that the old man is somehow going to rescue them from his grave. Bernard has learned the same waiting attitude. You know, he is really smart, Barak, but he just sits around all day doing nothing. He dropped out of school, and he doesn't have much prospects for finding work. I've told him that I would help him get into some sort of trade school, whatever he wants, just so he's doing something, you know. He'll say okay, but when I ask if he's gotten any applications or talked to schoolmasters, nothing's been done. Sometimes I feel like unless I take every step with him, nothing will happen. Maybe I can help. Yeah, maybe you can talk to him, Alma said. But now that you're here, coming from America, you're part of the inheritance, you see. That's why Sarah wants to see you so much. She thinks I'm hiding you from her because you're the one with everything. The rain had started again as we parked the car. A single light bulb jutting from the side of the building sent webbed, liquid shadows across Alma's face. The whole thing gets me so tired, Barak, she said softly. You wouldn't believe how much I missed Kenya when I was in Germany. All I could do was think about getting back home. I thought how I never feel lonely here, and family is everywhere. Nobody sends their pants to an old people's home or leaves their children with strangers. Then I'm here, and everyone is asking me for help, and I feel like they're all just grabbing at me, and that I'm going to sink. I feel guilty because I was luckier than them. I went to university. I can get a job. But what can I do, Barak? I'm only one person. I took Alma's hand and we remained in the car for several minutes, listening to the rain as it slackened. You asked me what my dream was, she said finally. Sometimes I have this dream that I will build a beautiful house on our grandfather's land. A big house where we can all stay and bring our families, you see. We could plant fruit trees like our grandfather, and our children would really know the land and speak Luo and learn our ways from the old people. It would belong to them. We can do all that, Alma, I said. She shook her head. Let me tell you what I start thinking then. I think of who will take care of the house if I'm not here. I think, who can I count on to make sure that a leak gets fixed or that the fence gets mended? It's terrible, selfish, I know. All I can do when I think this way is to get mad at the old man, because he didn't build this house for us. We are the children, Barak. Why do we have to take care of everyone? Everything is upside down crazy. I had to take care of myself, just like Bernard. Now I'm used to living my own life, just like a German. Everything is organized. If something is broken, I fix it. If something goes wrong, it's my own fault. If I have it, I send money to the family, and they can do with it what they want, and I won't depend on them, and they won't depend on me. It sounds lonely, I said. Oh, I know, Barak. That is why I keep coming home. That is why I'm still dreaming.
1: Context of White Supremacy. The number to dial seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and the code is five six four. Nine four three Pound. Press star six uh, if you would like to participate in the discussion. I'll give out the number one more time. Seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and the code is five six four. Nine four three pound. Press star six. Uh, if you would like to participate uh, I will get to the omissions first there were some pretty major omissions uh, every time uh, when I go through reading uh, this material and and I get a disconnect like wait a minute it's not matching up like oh they skipped over some stuff just uh, is another enforcement of I am really not interested in doing any more abridged books Uh, and it's just an awful way to read a book Uh, I will do one quick omission and then I will hit the phone lines get the folks who have hands up Uh, this is in I'm just picking one but there was there were several Uh, there was one when he was getting on the plane to make his visit to Kenya and he was apparently sitting next to a white passenger on the plane and there was some interesting dialogue there I'll see if we have time I can get that in as well but I thought this one was um even more meaningful you can judge for yourself Uh, so this is after he's in Kenya he's visiting with his uh, sister and they are going out to a restaurant It's, it's just within the context of the last five minutes or so of what we just heard uh, so they're out. Uh, they're going to this restaurant. I took the opportunity to study these tourists as Alma and I sat down for lunch in the outdoor cafe of the new Stanley Hotel. They were everywhere. Germans, Japanese, British, Americans, white people taking pictures, hailing taxis, fending off street peddlers, many of them dressed in safari suits like extras on a movie set. In Hawaii, when we were still kids, my friends and I had laughed at tourists like these, with their sunburns and their pale, skinny legs, basking in the glow of our obvious superiority. Here in Africa, though, the tourists didn't seem so funny. I felt them as an encroachment. Somehow, I found their innocence vaguely insulting. It occurred to me that in their utter lack of self-consciousness, they were expressing a freedom that neither Alma nor I could ever experience. A bedrock confidence in their own parochialism, a confidence reserved for those born into imperial cultures. Just then, I noticed an American family sit down a few tables away from us. Two of the African waiters immediately sprang into action, both of them smiling from one ear to the other. Since Alma and I hadn't yet been served, I began to wave at the two waiters who remained standing by the kitchen, thinking they must have somehow failed to see us. For some time they managed to avoid my glance, but eventually an older man with sleepy eyes relented and brought us over to menus. His manner was resentful, and after several more minutes, he showed no signs of ever coming back. Alma's face began to pinch with anger, and again I waved to our waiter, who continued in his silence as he wrote down our orders. At this point, the Americans had already received their food, and we still had no place settings. I overheard a young girl with a blonde ponytail complain that there wasn't any ketchup. Ketchup. Alma stood up. Let's go. She started heading for the exit then suddenly turned and walked back to the waiter who was watching us with an impassive stare. You should be ashamed of yourself, Alma said to him, her voice shaking. You should be ashamed. The waiter replied brusquely in Swahili. I don't care how many mouths you have to feed, You cannot treat your own people like dogs. Here Alma snapped open her purse and took out a crumpled hundred shilling note. You see, she shouted, I can pay for my own damn food. She threw the note to the ground and marched onto the street. For several minutes, we wandered without apparent direction. Until finally, I suggested we sit down on a bench beside the central post office. You okay? I asked her. She nodded. That was stupid, throwing away money like that. She set down her purse beside her, and we watched the traffic pass. You know, I can't go to a club in any of these hotels if I'm with another African woman, she said eventually. The Askaris will turn us away, thinking we are prostitutes. The same in any of these big office buildings. If you don't work there and you're an African, they will stop you until you tell them your business. But if you're with a German friend, then they're all smiles. Good evening, miss, they'll say. How are you tonight? Alma shook her head. That's why Kenya, no matter what it's GNP, no matter how many things you can buy here, the rest of Africa laughs. It's the whore of Africa, Barack it opens its legs to anyone who can pay. I told Ama she was being too hard on the Kenyan, that the same sort of thing happened in Dakar or Mexico City, just an unfortunate matter of economics. But as we started back toward the apartment, I knew my words had done nothing to soothe her bitterness. I suspected that she was right. Not all the tourists in Nairobi had come for the wildlife. Some came because Kenya, without shame, offered to recreate an age when the lives of whites in foreign lands rested comfortably on the backs of the darker races. An age of innocence before Kamathi and other angry young men in Soweto or Detroit or the Mekong Delta started to lash out in street street crime and revolution. In Kenya, a white man could still walk through Isak Denison's home and imagine romance with a mysterious young baroness, or sip gin under the ceiling fans of the Lord Delamar Hotel and admire portraits of Hemingway, smiling after a successful hunt, surrounded by grim-faced coolies. He could be served by a black man without fear of guilt, marvel at the exchange rate, and leave a generous tip. And if he felt a touch of indigestion at the sight of leprous beggars outside the hotel, he could always administer a ready tonic. Black Rule has come after all. This is their country. We're only visitors. Did our waiter know that Black Rule had come? Did it mean anything to him? Maybe once, I thought to myself, he would be old enough to remember independence, the shouts of Uhuru, and the raising of new flags. But such memories may seem almost fantastic to him now, distant and naive. He's learned that the same people who controlled the land before independence still control the same land. That he still cannot eat in the restaurants or stay in the hotels that the white man has built he sees the money of the city swirling above his head and the technology that spits out goods from its robot mouth. If he's ambitious, he will do his best to learn the white man's language and use the white man's machines, trying to make ends meet the same way the computer repairman in Newark or the bus driver back in Chicago does, with alternating spurts of enthusiasm or frustration, but mostly with resignation. And if you say to him that he's serving the interests of neo-colonialism or some other such thing, he he will reply that yes, he will serve if that is what is required. It is the lucky ones who serve. The unlucky ones drift into the murky tide of hustles and odd jobs. Many will drown. Then again... Maybe that's not all that the waiter is feeling. Maybe a part of him still clings to the stories of Mau Mau, the same part of him that remembers the hush of a village night or the sound of his mother grinding corn under a stone pallet. Something in him still says that the white man's ways are not his ways, that the objects he may use every day are not of his making. He remembers a time a way of imagining himself that he leaves only at his peril. He can't escape the grip of his memories. And so he straddles two worlds, uncertain in each, always off balance, playing whichever game staves off the bottomless poverty, careful to let his anger vent itself only on those in the same condition. A voice says to him, yes, changes have come. The old ways lie broken, and you must find a way as fast as you can to feed your belly and stop the white man from laughing at you. A voice says, no, you will sooner burn the earth to the ground. Wish they had left that portion in. Uh, and I will go to the phone lines. I will just say I'm left to wonder if he is talking about the waiter himself or both, because I definitely think that that last passage would assuredly apply to President Barack Obama. We will hit the phone lines uh, 760-569-7676. And the code is 564 564- Nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh B More, your line should be open. Uh eighteen oh four, your line should be open as well.
3: Um, peace gus and all the other listeners. Um several things stood out to me. Um in the beginning he talked about um how the white female that he was, I guess, courting, dating, whatever you want to call it, in a tragic arrangement with. They were of distant worlds. He said if they got together, he'd have to join hers, but he was used to it. He couldn't relate, um, basically couldn't relate to her. It made me think back to earlier in this book when he was talking about the emotions or whatever between the races to never be pure. Um, So, yeah, that stood out to me. And then, um, when the white woman was, uh, started to cry, and she said, um, she couldn't be black, she could if she would, but she couldn't. And I was just thinking, wow, white women will shed some tears. And it also made me think of how, um, I mean, people talk about how it's not that we're black, it's that white people can't be black. Um, that stood out. Um, what else? Oh, when they were in church and the younger little boy asked about, um, he bested out when he said, where's God? And the older boy told him to shut up. Um, I was just thinking about how children are born inquisitive, but it's adults and older children. Um, We're the ones that dumb them down. Um, We feel like they need to be taught. I mean, which they do need to be taught, but we, we put so much stuff in their head instead of letting them... Use their instinct and make their own way and let them learn on their own. So that stood out. Um, and I'll, I'll stop right there. Mm.
1: The weeping white woman. Mm. Uh, no, 1804, she was saying she was uh, tied up. Uh, with things on the plantation, so your line is open uh, if you want to participate at some point when you have a free moment, uh, if the background noise will cooperate, uh, you should be able to uh, just hop right in uh, if you have anything you want to share. Um, yeah, that that passage um, at the beginning that they also omitted where he's talking about the uh, the white woman that he loved... Uh, whatever that means. Uh, There is a more uh, extensive piece that deals with that. Uh, They did uh, a piece in my favorite magazine, Vanity Fair, uh, in May of this year, where they identified this woman. I guess they were saying that she was a composite of several people that he dated or what have you, but they uh, revealed this uh, white woman's identity and talked about her parents. Um, I think, as he said, they were like diplomats or what have you, but uh, it's it's a long piece. Uh, I don't know how... I didn't... Uh, Miss Gazelle, uh, she emailed it to me, so I don't know how long it is in the magazine, but online it's like a seven-page article. It's very long, and I think it's based on a book that another white person wrote. Uh, but it goes into more detail about their relationship and the time that they spent together and Uh, When they started drifting apart and it it goes into even more detail about President Obama saying that he had to uh, if he was going to marry somebody, it would have to be a black woman. Uh, There's no way he could marry a white woman and why that was. And when uh, it started to come up that he realized, okay, I'm a black person. Uh, People see me. They see a black person and the significance of that. Um it's really interesting if you want to check it out. I'll post it on my Facebook page if we have, if we have time, I might even, uh, share a little bit from that article because I thought it was, it was fascinating and it came out, like I said, I think May of, uh, 2012 in Vanity Fair, which is a publication I think folks who listen to this program, you should keep an eye on Vanity Fair, just what they're talking about, who's on the cover. Real interesting publication. Um I'm trying to think of some of the, uh, other standout portions uh, let's See, I'm looking at some of the other portions that I highlighted mm-hmm. okay when Harold uh, Washington at the very beginning this is right before they get to the church uh, scene where they're talking about Harold Washington dying and all of the, I guess, uh, confusion about what was going to happen. I thought that scene just with the black people out chanting and with their signs and what have you, and the powerful white people are just inside kind of snickering at them like, these niggers, we're just going to do whatever we want to do and keep it pushing while they're outside yelling and chanting, singing songs and what have you. The passage that I highlighted, and I think this this, uh, this is in the book. I mean, this was in the audio book. I don't think this was omitted uh, where he says, uh Only a few months earlier, Harold had won re-election, handily beating uh, Broldak and Byrne, breaking the deadlock that had prevailed in the city for the previous four years. He had run a cautious campaign, this time out, professionally managed, without any of the fervor of 1983, a campaign of consolidation of balanced budgets and public works he reached out to some of the old time machine politicians the Irish and the Poles, ready to make peace the business community sent him their checks resigned to his presence so secure was his power that rumblings of discontent had finally surfaced within his own base among black nationalists upset with his willingness to cut whites and Hispanics into the action among activists disappointed with his failure to tackle poverty head on and among people who preferred the dream to the reality, impotence to compromise. Uh, that was another section that reminded me very much. I think you could substitute Harold Washington and be talking about uh, President Obama. And I would say especially the second time around uh, this seems quite apropos for people like Dr. Cornell West and others who've complained that they feel like he hasn't done enough, he hasn't they said that exactly, he hasn't addressed poverty, he hasn't addressed poor people, he hasn't addressed uh racism. Uh he hasn't addressed uh all these issues that there a lot of these issues that they're talking about uh right here. Um I think very fitting he could have been he could have been talking about and maybe he is. Maybe he is talking about himself.
3: hello? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Another part that stood out to me, um, when his grandfather, I, I believe this was when he was, when he got accepted to Harvard, maybe, when his gr- grandfather was saying that he'd have all the opportunities he never had. And I was sitting there thinking like, yeah, right. You're a, uh, you're a white male. You're white. And he, this is a non-white male. There's no way. I mean, maybe the opportunity as far as college, but the privilege and all that, I was just thinking like, yeah, right. Um, So that stuck out to me as well. And then when um, President Obama was talking about the living conditions, um, that stuck out. I think it was just something as simple as when he got to Alma's place, he said there was a a murky stream. And I was just thinking about, um, I thought back to the compensatory call-in when you shared the article about the Native American Reservation and how they uh, had polluted water and uh, all, all kind of contaminants and carcinogens in the water and things like that. And I was just thinking about the living conditions. It, I mean, and, you know, affecting all non-white people. We can't even find clean, drinkable water. So that um, stuck out to me. And then another thing is when he w- uh, got to the airport and the the lady recognized him. And she said, um, she asked if he was Dr. Obama's son and just uh i was like oh man how good it feels to have a sense of, like somebody knowing you um to be identified and he said he felt comfort and basically at home so that stuck out and then oh uh, about how people were able pro- uh, to pronounce his name i was thinking about how uh, white people they will mess up um some non white names and basically call you what they want to be what they want to call you so those stuck out as well well
1: Oh, that is a great point. That is a great point. And I mean, just I think that's something that's one of the first things when I was becoming less confused about racism. Uh, I think Mr. Wicket, he had a post. Uh, it's in that article, like landmark article. I think everyone should read it on uh, the matrix. It's on the code dot net. Uh, Josh Wickett, he's been a guest on this program, Crease Program. Um, he even writes, I've seen him uh, make comments on uh, Pam's uh, blog as well. But Mr. Wickett, uh, he wrote in this post on the Matrix the film review, he was saying that uh, the scene where Neo, uh, he's talking to uh, Mr. or Agent Smith, he's talking to him, and Agent Smith, he continue, or excuse me, um, Agent Mr. Anderson, he continues to call him uh i'm messing the names all up sorry it's agent smith agent smith when he is talking to neo and he he will not call him neo he continues to call him Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson, and Neo was like, my name is Neil. My name is Neil. And Josh was making the point in uh, his post. He was saying that that is standard racism. They do that all the time when Muhammad Ali, when he changed his name and you had tons of white people, even some non-white. People, I'm not going to call him that. His name is Cassius Clay. That's what I'm going to call him. Uh, just purposely, I think, botching, mispronouncing non-white people's names, certainly not calling you sir or calling you uh, president Obama, I think Dr. Welsing talks about that all the time, they don't call him President Obama, they'll call him uh, just Obama, um, that they even when they're talking about a former president he'll be a dr- former President Clinton former President Carter, former President Bush, current, it's just that nigger in the White House <laughs> uh, so that, that is a excellent point uh, about the, they know his name they know how to pronounce it, the familiarity excellent point um, trying to think here Yeah, I was paying attention to the the language used as well. That stuck because I've been putting that in the description, uh, trying to just be mindful of the the way he talks about white people, the words, the adjectives that are used. I think that gives you a glimpse. The segment, and I wish they had kept it in the book, man, uh, where he's talking about the white woman uh, that he loved. I thought that description was. Wow. I'll see if I can scroll back and check it out again, because I thought the words that he used to describe this white woman uh, revealed a lot. Let's see. This is this is again in Chapter 11 and they dumped that whole chapter. Uh, Okay, he the way the words he uses to describe this white woman, he says. She was white. He, she was white. First thing, first detail that we get. I loved her. She was white. Uh, she had dark hair and specks of green in her eyes. Uh, to me, that stands out. Just, I think, a lot of that fascinating. We did that whole study session, the bluest eye uh, on just little things uh, that are different about white people. The characteristics, phenotypical characteristics that we have been brain trashed into worshiping things that we have been told are desirable or exotic or beautiful. This is something that, oh my gosh, she's got specks of green in her eyes. Uh, He goes on, he said, her voice sounded like a wind chime. I have no, I have heard some wind chimes in my life. I have never heard uh, a white person or a non-white person for that matter, where I can say their voice sounded like a wind chime uh let's see he goes on. he says uh they had their own private world, just two people, hidden and warm uh even the way that he talks about her uh family's country's house he's uh country house he says uh parents, they were very nice, very gracious uh it was autumn beautiful, with woods all around us. It's almost like he's in a whole nother world. I think he's pretty much saying that he was in another world. He was in their world, the white world. That was so wonderful and not the murky streams and poverty and all of everything that you get associated with black people, whether he's in Kenya or even in Chicago with Ruby, the blue contacts with Ruby as well. Uh, just It seems like it's a whole nother pristine world being with white people. Uh, And I think he also acknowledges that him being non-white, he questions whether or not he really belongs there, if he's going to be accepted. Is there a cost with being there? But I thought that really, really stood out. Uh, And I think it's a pattern. It's a pattern uh, in this book, and I think it's a pattern in racism, white supremacy. Uh, Praz, you should be with us as well. Praz, your line should be open also.
4: Yeah, when you uh, read that line about uh, their own private world. You know, I was thinking about, you know, uh, I've heard Pam also mention, you know, how how can you, you know, when you go to bed, there's no racism, (laughs) but when you wake up and you go to work, then you experience it again, and it makes me think of that uh, gentleman you interviewed who described it as a soothing lotion, I think, at the White Privilege Conference. So I was thinking that, yeah, he was getting involved in that soothing lotion, but he realized after a certain amount of time that it wasn't sufficient, like he... It was just uh, a fantasy. I I thought that was interesting.
1: Excellent point. Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr., by the way, the soothing lotion. Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr., founder of the White Privilege Conference, victim of racism. Uh, yeah, that, that fantasy world. And I think the way he describes it, it's almost like a fantasy. You almost needed the, uh, the dream sound effect when you, you're going back to, to, to remember some experience in the past. It uh, definitely has that quality. Very different from his descriptions of uh, his encounters with black people. Like, I don't remember a time where he talks uh, with those sort of accolades and you do not get that same presentation when he's talking about his experiences with black people, or at least I don't remember any. Uh, it's generally people that are suffering, having difficulties, problems. I think all of the exchanges that he's had with black people, they do not have that same uh, fantasy quality to them.
3: He even talks about the um, the men being absent in um, Kenya as well.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That passage that I read that they cut out uh, where they go to the the restaurant and they don't get served and all that uh, when his sister, when she's telling the story if they go to a club or they go someplace that the security uh, she goes with another woman, I thought that was interesting it's not her going to a club with another male but her going with another female which sounds very similar to a lot of uh, what I hear in these parts, uh, the difficulties, male-female relationships, and a lot of times where we just have females getting out and going to do things uh, with each other because, you know, the conflict and what racists have done, uh, keeping us from having healthy relationships with one another.
4: Yeah, and I think uh, a page after when he's talking about the, the uh, white female Um, You know, he's talking about uh, how he broke up with her, and he said, um, I got a postcard at Christmas. She's happy now. She's met someone, and I have my work. So it's almost like he he could see that he wouldn't have been able to get anything done. He wouldn't have been effective if he had stayed with her because it's almost like she was an intoxicating force, you know, that was sort of distracting him from his goals. I thought that was very, uh, very uh, insightful. Yeah, he was fine. He was fine as long as he was in La La Land, but he said, I pushed your away. We started to fight. We started thinking about the future, and it pressed into our warm world. So as he was trying to accomplish goals or be constructive, he found that the relationship was working in opposite of that direction. So, so he he was very aware of the effects of uh, the uh, the uh, sexual soaring and that was it.
1: Excellent point. Excellent point. Again, that uh, Vanity Fair article, um, I'll share. I don't know if we'll do it today, um, but I'll, I'll see if we can weave that in uh, before we finish with this book, because I think that will give a lot more insight into what you're saying. And it's just it's a great piece, great piece. Uh, I'm glad Miss Gazelle shared. Vanity Fair, man, check it out. It's one of white people's favorite magazines, Vanity Fair. Um,
2: this
1: is H-04. Right on. As Good I was the-
2: listening... To uh, one of your old podcasts on um, Planet of the Apes, I couldn't help—I I just couldn't help it. But when he mentioned that there were monkeys outside of his room in Kenya, I, I wondered, "Whoa, what, you know?" Because you had been so adamant in your uh, Planet of the Apes podcast that you know apes and monkeys and generally those represent people of color. Uh, sorry, non-white people. So I I just wondered if anybody uh had thoughts about what the monkeys represent in his writing. 'Cause they're because it was they're right outside of his room, uh, when he's in Kenya and they're kind of uh staring at him, they're kind of following him around. Uh, yeah. Just wanted to throw that I- out there.
3: I think it stuck out that he said they were, I think he said black-faced monkeys or something like that.
1: So I did, I mean, I didn't
3: really think much on it, but I did kind of note that that uh, distinction, black-faced monkeys. I think, I don't know if that was his exact word, but it was something about brown-faced and black-faced monkeys. Yeah,
4: and the way he he, uh, says that when he, Made his presence known. They all looked at him in sort of a fear expression, and it's, it sort of reminded me of how, you know, how non-whites respond when a white person comes in the room. You know, we have a sort of a fear uh, expression. We're just like everyone's attention is focused on, on them. Like in the it's similar to what happened in the restaurant where the waiters all cater to. Uh, the white customers, and just pretty much ignored him and his, uh, his, his uh, I think it was his aunt or cousin. I might be incorrect about that. I thought that was interesting.
3: I think it was his sister. And also when, um, I think it was his brother in the house, and he said that all the attention was on him and the brother kind of, I don't know, just his response because of the all the attention on him. So I thought about that as you were speaking.
1: I'm looking at that passage uh, that 1804 was talking about uh, with the monkeys. Uh, He says, uh, I noticed a troop of black faced monkeys gathered beneath a banyan tree. The older ones sat warily at the tree's base, watching with knotted brows as pups scampered about through the long, winding roots. Rinsing my face in the sink, I put water on for tea, then opened my door that led into the yard. The monkeys all froze in their tracks. Their eyes turned toward me in unison. A few feet away, the air filled with the beat of huge green wings, and I watched the dreamy ascent of a long-necked bird as it sent out a series of deep-throated cries and drifted towards distant canopies.
3: Right, I would, yeah. Um. And then I wondered what the significance of him saying he was lost in his face after saying the black-faced monkeys too. And then he opens the door, and when he was talking about the monkeys, I could kind of see him being people. How the basically the older people would sit and watch the younger people play, but yeah, they're monkeys, black-faced monkeys. Yeah.
2: Well, the other thing is, I just couldn't help but think about all of the. There's a lot of theories that the book was ghost-written by a white person, and so I, that's really where I'm just sitting here thinking, would. You know, this is why I was kind of interested in the monkey episode. Would that cheat that this was in fact written by a white person? Or, um, you know, do we, do we have a plausible way of explaining how he writes about the quote unquote monkeys?
1: Mm -hmm. i have uh unfortunately um i won't say names but i have read other literature um that's authored by a black person where they explicitly like it's not you know it's not anything like this they are explicitly um using language that compares non-white people to apes or monkeys so you know if uh if it is true, he did write this um you know, I have seen the system of white supremacy do enough damage where non white people will make explicit comparisons to non white people and apes, so I don't think it would be that far of a stretch to imagine a non white person doing something that uh I would say this is not an explicit comparison. I'd say this might be more implicit. this might be something you have to to ponder on a little bit. is he comparing the the monkeys to uh to black people um but i definitely i think that is plausible. Uh, 0416 your line should be open 0416
5: yeah I was going to say remember when he got to uh, Indonesia Lolo gave him a monkey as a pet so it's another monkey reference
1: that is correct Dr. Trav I forgot about that
5: I'm trying to catch up I finally got a live show (laughs)
1: <laughs> right on. Right on. Yeah, the different I I I've heard all the uh rumors around the book, uh you know, people saying he didn't write it and blah blah blah. Even one of our former guests, uh Bill Ayers, uh claimed that he wrote the book. Um Bill Ayers, uh former FBI most wanted uh terrorist blowing up federal buildings in this area of the world. Now he's a distinguished professor uh in illinois uh he on video claimed that he wrote the book uh dreams from my father so um yeah white people they're having a ball with it and again i would just say to me that reveals more why would white people why do white people have such an affinity uh for this book i really haven't heard too many white people who say that they don't like it or they're disgusted about it most of the white people that i've come in contact with they have Uh, A lot of praise uh, for dreams from my father, and I think that's something to keep in mind as we read that passage right there. Maybe white people, maybe when they read that passage, they snicker and think, oh, he's talking about the black people, those little monkeys, hmm.
3: I just want to say white people always want to take credit for something. That's just, that's what they do. Oh, we built the pyramids. Oh, we were the first settlers. Oh, we wrote Obama's book. Just They always like to take credit for something. Or should I say, they take credit for things they didn't do and won't own up to things they do? Let's say that.
1: Well said. Well said. Uh, you have a moment I guess I can share one of the other portions that they omitted that I also thought was significant again I'm so bummed about this I feel like I have to be on my toes uh, reading this because they you know you just be skipping over stuff left and right and I feel like a lot of the stuff that they have skipped is you know really significant I think Um, this is at the very beginning of chapter 15 so this is when he's first going to Kenya um this is before he arrives at the airport. They kind of cut out uh, maybe like two pages before he gets to the airport in Kenya. Uh, he says, uh, this is the very beginning of 15, anybody out there who's got the, the text. Uh, I flew out of Heathrow Airport under stormy skies. A group of young British men dressed in ill-fitting blazers filled the back of the plane, and one of them, a pale, gangly youth, still troubled with acne, took the seat beside me he read over the emergency instructions twice with great concentration and once we were airborne he turned to ask where i was headed i told him i was traveling to nairobi to visit my family Nairobi's a beautiful place i hear wouldn't mind stopping off there one of these days going to johannesburg i am he explained that as part of a degree program in geology The British government had arranged for him and his classmates to work with South African mining companies for a year. The irony seems like they have a shortage of trained people there. So if we're lucky, they'll take us on for a permanent spot. Best chance we've got for a decent wage. I reckon unless you're willing to freeze out on some bleeding North Sea oil rig. Not for me, me, thank you. I mentioned that if given the chance, a lot of black South Africans might be interested in getting such training. Well, I'd imagine you're right about that, he said. Don't much agree with the race policy there. A shame, he thought for a moment. But then the rest of Africa's falling apart now, isn't it? At least from what I can tell, the blacks in South Africa aren't starving to death like they do in some of these godforsaken countries. Don't envy them, mind you, but compared to some poor booger in Ethiopia... A stewardess came down the aisle with headphones for rent and the young man pulled out his wallet. Of course, I try to stay out of politics, you know. Figure it's none of my business. Same thing back home. Everybody on the dole, the old men in parliament talking the same old rubbish. Best thing to do is to mind your own little corner of the world. That's what I say. He found the outlet for the headphones and slipped them over his ears. Wake me up when they bring the food, will you? He said before reclining his seat for a nap. I pulled out a book from my carry-on bag and tried to read. It was a portrait of several African countries written by a Western journalist who'd spent a decade in Africa. An old Africa hand, he would be called, someone who apparently prided himself on the balanced assessment. The book's first few chapters discussed the history of colonialism at some length, the manipulation of tribal hatreds, and the caprice of colonial boundaries. The displacements, the detentions, and the indignities large and small. The early heroism of independence figures like Kenyatta, Nkrumah, was duly noted. Their latter drift toward despotism attributed at least in part to various Cold War machinations. By the book's third chapter, images from the present had begun to outstrip the past. Famine, disease, the coups, and counter-coups led by illiterate young men wielding AK-47s like shepherd sticks. If Africa had a history, the writer seemed to say, the scale of current suffering had rendered such history meaningless. Poor Boogers, God-Forsaken Countries. I set the book down, feeling a familiar anger flush through me an anger all the more maddening for its lack of a clear target. Beside me, the young Brit was snoring softly now, his glasses askew on his fin-shaped nose. Was I angry at him, I wondered? Was it his fault that for all my education, all the theories in my possession, I had no ready answers to the questions he posed? How much could I blame him for wanting to better his lot? maybe I was just angry of his easy familiarity with me his assumption that I as an American even a black American might naturally share in his dim view of Africa an assumption that in his world at least marked a progress of sorts but that for me only underscored my own uneasy status a Westerner not entirely at home in the West an African on his way to a land full of strangers. I had been feeling this way all through my stay in Europe. Edgy, defensive, hesitant with strangers. I hadn't planned it that way. I had thought that the layover there as nothing more than a whimsical detour, an opportunity to visit places I had never been before. For three weeks I had traveled alone, down one side of the continent and up the other, by bus and by train, mostly a guidebook in hand, I took tea by the by the Thames and watched children chase each other through the chestnut groves of Luxembourg Garden. I crossed the Plaza, Plaza Major at high noon, with its De Chirico shadows and sparrows swirling across the cobalt skies, and watched nightfall over the Palatine, waiting for the first stars to appear, listening to the wind and its whispers of mortality. Uh, I will stop That He goes on about his trip there and how he didn't really fit in. Uh, Also thought that chunk was pretty interesting. Uh, I would really be curious to know who put this uh, audio book together and who was the person responsible for making the decisions about what was going to be cut, what was going to be left in? If Anybody finds that information before we wrap up? Uh, I would really appreciate hearing that. Um, anything else anyone wanted to share before we get to segment number two?
5: Let me. Uh, I um, Something I learned on the show that I keep in mind all the time. Listening to the cows, I learned that Western means white, and that really helps me when I read and hear different things. So he's just like, it's like the, um, the white guy. Since, uh, I guess Barack Obama was, he classified him as Western. Like, you know how you say white people just assume every other white person is a racist. It's almost like the, uh, Brit is just assuming that Barack Obama is, I don't want to say white, but it just has the same feelings, you know. And it's it's interesting, you know. Western means white. They changed like the whole thing. I used to think Western meant cowboy, but I guess cowboy means white too, right? <laughs> Western means white. I I, I
4: uh, think of when I hear that uh, that passage, I think of. Um, Yorugu and the civilized man uh, where she talks about uh they describe progress in their own uh, interpretation is basically uh they, they say it's so universal progress but it's really a facade for like she says a manifestation of european cultural nationalism and imperialism and you know the young man that was sitting next to him it's like he could just go to sleep, put his headphones on, and uh, white supremacy just keeps on rolling. So he's not even worried. He's like, wake me up when they give me something to eat. <laughs> so
2: <laughs> I just
4: thought it's funny, you know. Oh, and there's another part in the book where
5: Barack Obama was talking to an older guy, and he was talking about Barack Obama's grandfather who could uh, come over to his house and drink his alcohol and go to sleep like a baby. And the guy could never go to Barack Obama's grandfather's house and go to sleep. So that's kind of a, you know, comparing, contrast, and comparison. It's like the same thing based on what the caller, you know, just said. You remember that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, this sounds like another form of white welfare where some white guy from, you know, Europe can just go down to South Africa and get a job. Or Western welfare I agree so when we got a reoccurring theme throughout the uh, book white people going to sleep comfortably wake me up give me
4: some alcohol <laughs> That's why it's called a system, because it's out in operation 24-7. It's like they have shifts. Somebody could go to sleep. You got other people who are uh, taking the night shift on the white supremacy yeah. team.
5: It's funny, because I was on a plane last night, and I had a white woman that was asleep next to me, and uh, I was up. And my daughter was on the other side of me and I said I was not going to go to sleep just to make sure that all these Jerry Sanduskys keep their fingers where they're supposed to be.
1: Excellent. Counter-racist parenting. Excellent points. Excellent points. That is um, I remember that that scene where he's talking to Frank and that was omitted. So that's what I mean. Like is I'm never, 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 never doing an abridged book on the program again. Never. Because that was omitted too, uh, from the audio book. But I thought that was one of the most important segments from the book that they omitted when he was having that discussion. Uh, the black male's name is Frank in the book. Uh, where he was having that talk after his grandmother's incident with the black male, asking her for change. And he says, uh, yeah, your, your great grandfather can come here and sleep comfortably. I could never do that uh, with a white man. I thought that was one of the most important moments uh, in the book. And I think it is. It's it's connected. I think that moment with his white grandmother, he referenced that uh, when the whole Reverend Wright thing flared up. I think that's one of the most important moments in the book. Uh, and for that to be left out, uh, as Dr. Trav said a, Recurring motif. White people not bothered at all. (laughs) They do not perceive uh, any threat to the system. They are uh, sleeping like babies while black people suffer and die all over the world.
5: I have um, have another question. He wrote this book before he was slated to be um, president. Do you think the white people read the book and said, hey, this will be a good guy? Or did they pick him first and say, let's write a book, and, you know, in another 10 years we'll put him in a position?
1: I would take the latter. Uh, I could be wrong, but uh, I would take the latter. Um, Why would he even... uh I mean, just a lot of things I think about. Uh, I don't believe in coincidence. Uh, I think white people, they tend to have plans, long range plans. Uh, I don't think white people uh, make a decision about who's going to be president five years out. I think they tend to be I think they tend to think about that sort of thing years and years and years down the road. Uh, Like when you see photographs of Bill Clinton with John F. Kennedy. I don't think that's a coincidence. Excuse me. You see photographs of Bill Clinton, like before he was even 20, uh, shaking John F. Kennedy's hand uh, out in D.C. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think white people sit down and they are already thinking about who's going to be president in 2024, 2028. They're already thinking about that stuff now. So uh, I don't think this book. I think was copyrighted in 1995. Um, I suspect they were already thinking about that down the road uh, and saying, yeah, let's go ahead. Let's get the book out. so We'll have that. Uh, let's go ahead and prep him for his career in politics. I think they probably were thinking about that uh, while he was at t- probably even before he got to Harvard, I would think. I could be wrong and I don't I don't know. I would have to to do some research to get more evidence. But I would take the latter that they were already thinking about it. And the book was just a, a, a part of that process to getting him where they wanted him to be.
5: Mm. Okay, last thing, then I'll uh, mute myself. It seems like the parts that were admitted seem like they are sections where he seems like an angry black man, you know, like he has some moments of clarity, but um, they don't want to offend anybody and make it seem like he would be angry. You know, like, I'd have to listen back to the uh, archives, but it seems like when you read the Omitted parts, there's an aha moment. Aha. And they say, no, 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 we don't want that part in the book. Might offend some suspected racists.
4: Yeah, I would agree. The most revealing parts that sort of really reveal how the system of racism and white supremacy works, those are most likely the parts omitted from the book. I would agree.
5: that thing again. So if they, if the, if the people wrote it, why would they omit it? I mean, why would they put it in the book in the first place? Clowning, comedy. <laughs> I don't
4: understand.
2: <laughs>
4: Pro- probably a Oh, go ahead.
2: Well, I, I just wanted to say I totally agree with all the points that were just made. Um, definitely, totally agree with what uh, with. Oh. Kef- said about uh his career having been planned very early. That's kind of how it works. That's definitely how it works, with Bill Clinton. We're already in law school. Um Hillary knew that he was slated for big things and that's when they say that she latched on to him. So um so definitely I think he was already on some sort of short list before um before he wrote the book. And then also, um, in terms of the parts that were removed, totally agree with what people said. And then I wanted to link that to another point about why white people like the book. And it's not in any of the uh, excerpts that uh, we listened to tonight. But the, he, I, I read the book like years ago, and I know that he makes a he loves to compare Michelle to his grandma Toot. Toot. Which I think is another way of making her more relatable to white people. It's like, oh, like he loves to say that she has that same Midwestern, like the what he liked about Michelle was that she was this Midwesterner like Toot. Um, you know, with, with the with the Chicago values and the you know, almost giving her that these kinda um uh midwestern white values, really. You know, work ethic, work hard. Uh, you know, be stern, etc., cetera, et cetera. So I just, I think that the yeah, the book was written with a very specific audience in mind, and I think if they did leave some of the angry black man passages in, it's because it's it's meant to, to it's you know it's, basically he's like the world president. He's some people say he's the president of the new world order of, of the new world order. He's got to everybody's got to have a, a a piece of it. Africans, third world people. That's why, you know, all of the passages read today show that breath. Um, and so, of course, you know, people who are angry and black in America have to see themselves in the book, too. So they really weave all of that in the book so that, you know, white people can see themselves, angry black people can see themselves, people in the third world can see themselves.
5: Uh, race, uh, race, like, race matters.
4: Yeah, I'd, I'd also like to add, like, if you're if you're making something and you're trying to fabricate it you always have to put in a little bit of truth in there because if you just lie throughout the whole thing, people can determine, like, oh, this is just a bunch of uh, malarkey. But if you put a little bit of truth and some deception in there, it's a lot more persuasive and confusing for, for people.
1: So, Good point. Good point uh we will pause cuz i want to make sure we have time for folks to share uh once we get done with the second portion uh of the audio uh i'm not sure if we're going to get to where he gets to Michelle Obama in this book that might have to that might not come up until next week so just keep and in fact i'm pretty sure it's not coming up this week it'll probably be a next week thing so keep that in mind uh the comparison that she just brought up uh about Michelle Obama and his white grandmother Toot. uh that'll probably be a next week thing Anywho, uh, we will do portion number two, uh, and then we'll uh, hear feedback from uh, the rest of the folks on the line. Uh, If you want to share, don't wait till the last minute. Go ahead and get your hand up as soon as the audio ends uh, for segment number two. If you want to share, uh, we should have ample time to uh, exchange views uh, on the second audio clip. Uh, So this is part number two, Dreams from My Father, President Barack Obama. What
0: is a family? Is it just a genetic chain, parents and offspring, people like me? Or is it a social construct, an economic unit, optimal for child-rearing and divisions of labor? Or is it something else entirely, a store of shared memories, say, an ambit of love, a reach across the void? I could list various possibilities, but I'd never arrived at a definite answer, aware early on that, given my circumstances, such an effort was bound to fail instead i drew a series of circles around myself with borders that shifted as time passed and faces changed but that nevertheless offered the illusion of control an inner circle where love was constant and claims unquestioned then a second circle a realm of negotiated love commitments freely chosen and then a circle of colleagues acquaintances the cheerful gray-haired lady who rang up my groceries back in chicago until the circle finally widened to embrace a nation or a race or a particular moral course, and the commitments were no longer tied to a face or a name, but were actually commitments I'd made to myself. In Africa, this astronomy of mine almost immediately collapsed, for families seemed to be everywhere, in stores, at the post office, on streets and in parks, all of them fussing and fretting over Obama's long-lost son. If I mentioned in passing that I needed a notebook or shaving cream, I could count on one of my aunts to insist that she take me to some far-off corner of Nairobi to find the best bargains, no matter how long the trip took or how much it might inconvenience her. Ah, Betty, what's more important than helping my brother's son? If a cousin discovered, much to his distress, that Alma had left me to fend for myself, he might walk the two miles to Alma's apartment on the off chance that I was there and needed company. Ah, Betty, why didn't you call on me? Come, I will take you to meet some of my friends. And in the evenings, well, Alma and I simply surrendered ourselves to the endless invitations that came our way, from uncles, nephews, second cousins, or cousins once removed, all of whom demanded, at the risk of insult, that we sit down for a meal, no matter what time it happened to be or how many meals we had already eaten. Ah, Betty, we may not have much in Kenya, but so long as you are here, you will always have something to eat. At first, I reacted to all this attention like a child to its mother's bosom, full of simple, unquestioning gratitude. It conformed to my idea of Africa and Africans, an obvious contrast to the growing isolation of American life, a contrast I understood not in racial but in cultural terms, a measure of what we sacrificed for technology and mobility, but that here, as in the kampongs outside Jakarta, or in the country villages of Ireland or Greece, remained essentially intact the insistent pleasure of other people's company the joy of human warmth as the days wore on though my joy became tempered with tension and doubt some of it had to do with what Alma had talked about that night in the car an acute awareness of my relative good fortune and the troublesome questions such good fortune implied not that our relatives were suffering exactly both Jane and Zeituni had steady jobs Kazia made do selling cloth in the markets if cash got too short the children could be sent up-country for a time—that's where another brother, Abo was staying, I was told—with an uncle in Bay, where there were always chores to perform, food on the table, and a roof over one's head. Still, the situation in Nairobi was tough, and getting tougher. Clothes were mostly second-hand, a doctor's visit reserved for the direst emergency. Almost all the family's younger members were unemployed, including the two or three who had managed, against stiff competition, to graduate from one of Kenya's universities. If Jane or Zaituni ever fell ill, if their companies ever closed or laid them off, there was no government safety net. There was only family, next of kin, people burdened by similar hardship. Now I was family, I reminded myself. Now I had responsibilities. But what did that mean exactly? Back in the States, I'd been able to translate such feelings into politics, organizing a certain self-denial. In Kenya, these strategies seemed hopelessly abstract, even self-indulgent. A commitment to black empowerment couldn't help find Bernard a job. A faith in participatory democracy couldn't buy Jane a new set of sheets. For the first time in my life, I found myself thinking deeply about money. My own lack of it, the pursuit of it, the crude but undeniable peace it could buy. A part of me wished I could live up to the image that my new relatives imagined for me. A corporate lawyer, an American businessman, my hand poised on the spigot, ready to rain down like mana, the largesse of the Western world. But, of course, I wasn't either of those things. Even in the States, wealth involved trade-offs for those who weren't born to it, the same sort of trade-offs that I could see Alma now making as she tried, in her own way, to fulfill the family's expectations. She was working two jobs that summer, teaching German classes to Kenyan businessmen, along with her job at the university. With the money she saved, she wanted not only to fix up Granny's house in a Lego, but also to buy a bit of land around Nairobi, something that would appreciate in value, a base from which to build. She had plans, schedules, budgets, and deadlines. All the things she'd learned were required to negotiate a modern world. The problem was that her schedules also meant begging off from family affairs. Her budgets meant saying no to the constant requests for money that came her way. And when this happened, when she insisted on going home before Jane served dinner because things had started two hours late, or when she refused to let eight people pile into her VW because it was designed for four and they would tear up the seats, the looks of unspoken hurt, barely distinguishable from resentment, would flash across the room. Her restlessness, her independence, her constant willingness to project into the future, all of this struck the family as unnatural somehow. Unnatural and un It was the same dilemma posed to me the year I left Hawaii the same tensions that certain children on the South Side might suffer if they took too much pleasure in doing their schoolwork, the same perverse survivor's guilt that I could expect to experience if I ever did try to make money and had to pass the throngs of young black men on the corner as I made my way to a downtown office. Without power for the group—a group larger, even, than an extended family—our success always threatened to leave others behind. And perhaps it was that fact that left me so unsettled—the fact that even here, in Africa, the same maddening patterns still held sway, that no one here could tell me what my blood ties demanded, or how those demands could be reconciled with some larger idea of human association. It was as if we, Alma, Roy, Bernard, and I, were all making it up as we went along, as if the map that might have once measured the direction and force of our love, the code that would unlock our blessings, had been lost long ago buried with the ancestors beneath a silent earth. Toward the end of my first week in Nairobi, Zaituni took me to visit our other aunt, Sarah. Alma had remained unwilling to go, but because it turned out that her mechanic lived near Sarah, she offered to give us a ride to her garage. From there, she said we could travel by foot. On Saturday morning, Alma and I picked up Zaituni and headed east, past cinder block apartments and dry, garbage-strewn lots until we finally came to the rim of a wide valley known as Matari. Alma pulled off to the shoulder, and I looked out the window to see the shanty town below. Miles and miles of corrugated rooftops shimmering under the sun like wet lily pads, buckling and dipping in an unbroken sequence across the valley floor. How many people live there? I asked. Alma shrugged and turned to our aunt. What would you say, auntie? Half a million, maybe? Zaituni shook her head. That was last week. This week, it must be one million. Alma started the car back up. Nobody knows for sure, Barak. The place is growing all the time. People come in from the countryside, looking for work, and end up staying permanently. For a while, the city council tried to tear down the settlements. They said it was a health hazard, an affront to Kenya's image, you see. Bulldozers came, and people lost what little they had. But of course, they had nowhere else to go. As soon as the bulldozers left, people rebuilt just like before. We came to a stop in front of a slanting tin shed where a mechanic and several apprentices emerged to look Alma's car over. Promising to be back in an hour, Zaituni and I left Alma at the garage and began our walk down a wide, unpaved road. It was already hot, the road bereft of shade. On either side were rows of small hovels, their walls a patchwork of wattle, mud, pieces of cardboard, and scavenged plywood. They were neat, though, the packed earth in front of each home cleanly swept and everywhere we could see tailors and shoe repairers and furniture makers plying their trades out of roadside stalls and women and children selling vegetables from wobbly wood tables. Eventually we came to one edge of Matare, where a series of concrete buildings stood along a paved road. The buildings were eight, maybe twelve stories tall, and yet curiously unfinished, the wood beams and rough cement exposed to the elements like they'd suffered an aerial bombardment. We entered one of them, climbed a narrow flight of stairs, and emerged at the end of a long, unlit hallway, at the other end of which we saw a teenage girl hanging out close to dry on a small cement patio. Zaituni went to talk to the girl, who led us wordlessly to a low, scuffed door. We knocked, and a dark, middle-aged woman appeared, short but sturdily built, with hard, glassy eyes set in a wide, raw-boned face. She took my hand and said something in Luo. She says she is ashamed to have her brother's son see her in such a miserable place. Zaituni translated. We were shown into a small room, ten feet by twelve, large enough to fit a bed, a dresser, two chairs, and a sewing machine. Zaituni and I each took one of the chairs, and the young woman who had shown us Sarah's room returned with two warm sodas. Sarah sat on the bed and leaned forward to study my face. Alma had said that Sarah knew some English, but she spoke mostly in Luo now. Even without the benefit of Zaituni's translation, I guessed that she wasn't happy. She wants to know why have taken so long to visit her, Saituni explained. She says that she is the eldest child of your grandfather, Hussein Onyango, and that you should have come to see her first. Tell her I meant no disrespect, I said, looking at Sarah, but not sure what she understood. Everything's been so busy since my arrival. It was hard to come sooner. Sarah's tone became sharp. She says that the people you stay with must be telling you lies. Tell her that I've heard nothing said against her. Tell her that the dispute about the old man's estate has just made Alma uncomfortable about coming here. Sarah snorted after the translation and started up again, her voice rumbling against the close walls. When she finally stopped, Zeituni remained quiet. What'd she say, Zeituni. Zeituni's eyes stayed on Sarah as she answered my question. She says the trial is not her fault. She says that it's Kazia's doing, Alma's mom. She says that the children who claim to be Obamas are not Obamas. She says that they have taken everything of his and left his true people living like beggars. Sarah nodded, and her eyes began to smolder. Yes, Betty, she said suddenly in English. It is me who looks after your father when he is a very small boy. My mother, Akumu, is also your father's mother. Akumu is your true grandmother, not this one you call Granny. Akumu, the woman who gave your father life, you should be helping her and me, your brother's sister. Look where I live. Why don't you help us instead of these others? Before I could answer, Zaituni and Sarah began to argue with each other in Luo. Eventually, Zaituni stood up and straightened her skirt. We should go now, Betty. I began to rise out of my chair, but Sarah took my hand in both of hers, her voice softening. Will you give me something for your grandmother? I reached for my wallet and felt the eyes of both aunts as I counted out the money I had on me, perhaps thirty dollars' worth of shillings. I pressed them into Sarah's dry, chaffed hands, and she quickly slipped the money down the front of her blouse before clutching my hand again. Stay here, Betty, Sarah said. You must meet— You can come back later, Betty, Zaitouni said. Let's go. Outside, a hazy yellow light bathed the road. My clothes hung limp against my body in the windless heat. zaituni was quiet now, visibly upset. She was a proud woman, this aunt. The scene with Sarah must have embarrassed her. And then that thirty dollars. Lord knows she could have used it herself. We had walked for ten minutes before I asked Zaituni what she and Sarah had been arguing about. Ah, it's nothing, Betty. This is what happens to old women who have no husbands. Zaituni tried to smile, but the tension creased the corners of her mouth. Come on, auntie, tell me the truth. Zaituni shook her head. I don't know the truth, at least not all of it. I know that even growing up, Sarah was always closer to her real mom, Akumu. Barak, your dad, he cared only for my mom, Granny, the one who raised them after Akumu left. Why did Akumu leave? I'm not sure. You will have to ask Granny about that. Saituni signaled for us to cross the street, then resumed talking. You know, your father and Sarah were actually very similar, even though they did not always get along. She was smart like him, and independent. She used to tell me, when we were children, that she wanted to get an education so that she would not have to depend on any man. That's why she ended up married to four different husbands. None of them lasted. The first one died, but the others she left because they were lazy or they tried to abuse her. I admire her for this. Most women in Kenya put up with anything. I did for a long time. But Sarah also paid a price for her independence. Zaituni wiped the sweat on her forehead with the back of her hand. Anyway, after Sarah's first husband died, she decided that your father should support her and her child, since he had received all the education. That's why she disliked Kazia and her children. She thought Kazia was just a pretty girl who wanted to take everything. You must understand, Betty, in Luo custom, the male child inherits everything. Sarah feared that once your grandfather died, everything would belong to Barak and his wives and she would be left with nothing. I shook my head. That's no excuse for lying about who the old man's children are. You're right, but... But what? Zaitouni stopped walking and turned to me. She said, After your father went off to live with his American wife, Ruth, well, he would go to Kazia sometimes. You must understand that traditionally she was still his wife. It was during such a visit that Kazia became pregnant with Abou, the brother you haven't met. The thing was, Kazia also lived with another man briefly during this time. So when she became pregnant again, with Bernard, no one was sure who. Zaitouni stopped, letting the thought finish itself. Does Bernard know about this? Yes, he knows by now. You understand, such things made no difference to your father. He would say that they are all his children. He drove this other man away and would give Kazia money for the children whenever he could. But once he died, There was nothing to prove that he had accepted them in this way. We turned a corner, onto a busier road. In front of us, a pregnant goat bleated as it scuttered out of the path of an oncoming matatu. Across the way, two little girls in dusty red school uniforms, their round heads shaven almost clean, held hands and sang as they skipped across a gutter. An old woman, with her head under a faded shawl, motioned to us to look at her wares, two margarine tins of dried beans, a neat stack of tomatoes dried fish hanging from a wire like a chain of silver coins. I looked into the old woman's face, drawn beneath the shadows. Who was this woman, I wondered? My grandmother? A stranger? And what about Bernard? Should my feelings for him somehow be different now? I looked over at a bus stop, where a crowd of young men were streaming out into the road, all of them tall and black and slender, their bones pressing against their shirts. I suddenly imagined Bernard's face on all of them, multiplied across the landscape, across continents, hungry, striving, desperate men, all of them my brothers. Now you see what your father suffered. What? I rubbed my eyes and looked up to find my aunt staring at me. Yes, Betty, your father suffered, she repeated. I'm telling you, his problem was that his heart was too big. When he lived, he would just give to everybody who asked him, and they all asked. You know, he was one of the first in the whole district to study abroad. The people back home— They didn't even know anyone else who had ridden in an airplane before. So they expected everything from him. Ah, Barak, you're a big shot now. You should give me something. You should help me. Always these pressures from family. And he couldn't say no. He was so generous. You know, even me he had to take care of when I became pregnant. He was very disappointed in me. He had wanted me to go to college. But I would not listen to him and I went off with my husband. And despite this thing, when my husband became abusive, and I had to leave, no money, no job, who do you think took me in? Yes, it was him. That's why, no matter what others sometimes say, I will always be grateful to him. We were approaching the garage shop. Up ahead, we could see Alma talking to her mechanic and hear the engine of the old VW whine. Beside us, a naked boy, maybe three years old, wandered out from behind a row of oil drums, his feet caked with what looked like tar. Again, Zaitouni stopped this time as if suddenly ill, and spat into the dust. When your father's luck changed, she said, these same people he had helped, they forgot him. They laughed at him. Even family refused to have him stay in their houses. Yes, Betty refused. They would tell Barak it was too dangerous. I knew this hurt him, but he wouldn't pass blame. Your father never held a grudge. In fact, when he was rehabilitated and doing well again, I would find out he was giving help to these same people who had betrayed him. Ah, I could not understand this thing. I would tell him, Barak, you should only look after yourself and your children. These others, they have treated you badly. They are just too lazy to work for themselves. And you know what he would say to me? He would say, How do you know that man does not need this small thing more than me? My aunt turned away, and forcing a smile, waved to Alma. And as we began to walk forward, she added, I tell you this so you will know the pressures your father was under in this place, so you don't judge him too harshly, and you must learn from his life. If you have something, then everyone will want a piece of it, so you have to draw the line somewhere. If everyone is family, no one is family. Your father, he never understood this, I think. Alma and I received word that Roy had arrived a week earlier than we'd expected. The family was thrilled by his arrival and had held off on a big feast only until Alma and I returned from safari. Bernard, who brought us the news, said that we were expected soon. He fidgeted as he spoke, as if every minute away from our eldest brother were a dereliction of duty. But Alma insisted on taking the time for a bath. Don't worry, she said to Bernard. Roy just likes to make everything seem so dramatic. Jane's apartment was in a hubbub when we arrived. In the kitchen, the women were cleaning collards and yams, chopping chicken, and stirring ugali. In the living room, younger children set the table or served sodas to the adults. And at the center of this rush sat Roy, his legs spread out in front of him, his arms flung along the back of the sofa, nodding with approval. He waved us over and offered us each a hug. Alma, who hadn't seen Roy since he moved to the States, stepped back to get a better look. You've become so fat, she said. "'Fat, eh?' Roy laughed. "'A man needs a man-sized appetite,' he turned towards the kitchen. "'Which reminds me, where's that other beer?' No sooner had the words fallen from his mouth than Kazia came with a beer in hand, smiling happily. "'Betty,' she said in English. "'This is the eldest son, head of the family.' Another woman, who I'd never seen before, plump and heavy-breasted, with bright red lipstick, sidled up beside Roy and put her arm around him. Kazia's smile subsided and she drifted back into the kitchen. Baby, the woman said to Roy, do you have the cigarettes? Yeah, hold on. Roy patted his shirt pockets carefully. Have you met my brother, Barak? Barak, this is Amy. You remember Alma. Roy found the cigarettes and lit one for Amy. Amy took a long drag and leaned forward toward Alma, exhaling round puffs of smoke as she spoke. Of course I remember Alma. How are you? Let me tell you, you look wonderful. And I like what you've done to your hair. Really, it's so natural. Amy reached for Roy's bottle, and Roy went to the dinner table. He grabbed himself a plate and bent down to smell the steaming pots. Chapos! he exclaimed, dropping three chapatis onto his plate. wiki, he shouted the collard greens, before spooning a heap onto his plate. Ugali! he hollered, cutting off two big wedges of cornmeal cake. Bernard and the children followed his every step repeating Roy's words at a more tentative volume. Around the table, our aunts and Kazia beamed with satisfaction. It was the happiest I'd seen any of them since my arrival. After dinner, while Amy helped the aunts wash up, Roy sat between Alma and me and announced that he had come back with big plans. He was going to start an import-export company, he said, selling Kenyan curios in the States. Chondos, fabrics, wood carvings, these things are big over there. You sell them at festivals, art shows, specialty stores. I already bought some samples to take back with me. That's a great idea, Alma said. Show me what you've got. Roy told Bernard to fetch several pink plastic bags from one of the bedrooms. Inside the bags were a few wood carvings, the sort of slick, mass-produced pieces that were sold at quick turnover to the tourists downtown. Alma turned them around in her hands with a doubtful expression on her face. How much did you pay for these? Only four hundred shillings each so much? Brother, I think you've been cheated. Bernard, why'd you let him pay so much? Bernard shrugged. Roy looked a bit wounded. I told you these are just samples, he said as he folded the carvings back in the wrapping. An investment, so I will know what the market wants. You can't make money unless you spend money, eh, Barak? That's what they say. Roy's enthusiasm quickly returned. You see? Once I know the market, then I will send orders back to Zeituni. We'll build the business up slowly, you see. Slowly. Then, when we have a regular system, Bernard and Abo can go work for the company. Hey, Bernard, you can work for me. Bernard nodded vaguely. Alma studied her younger brother, then turned back to Roy. So what's the other big plan? Roy smiled. Amy, he said. I'm going to marry her. What? How long has it been since you last saw her? Two years, three years, what does it matter? You haven't had much time to think about it. She's an African woman. I know that. She understands me, not like these European women always arguing with the men. Roy nodded emphatically, and then, as if he were being yanked by an invisible string, he jumped out of his seat and headed towards the kitchen. Taking Amy in one arm, he lifted his bottle of beer towards the ceiling. Listen, everybody. Now that we are here, we must have a toast to those who are not with us and to a happy ending. With solemn deliberation, he started to pour his beer onto the floor. At least half of the beer splashed on Alma's shoes. Ah! Alma shouted, jumping back. What are you doing? The ancestors must drink, Roy said cheerfully. It is the African way. Alma grabbed a napkin to wipe the beer off her legs. That's outdoors, Roy. Not in somebody's house. I swear, sometimes you're so careless. Who will clean this up now? You? Roy was about to answer when Jane rushed up with a rag in her hand. "'Don't worry, don't worry,' she said, wiping up the floor. "'We are just happy to have this one home.' "'It had been decided that after dinner we would all go out dancing at a nearby club. "'As Alma and I headed down the stairs ahead of the others, "'I heard her muttering to herself in the darkness. "'Oh, you Obama men,' she said to me, "'you get away with anything. "'Have you noticed how they treat him? "'As far as they are concerned, he can do no wrong. "'Like this thing with Amy.' This is just an idea that has popped into his head because he's lonely. I have nothing against Amy, but she is as irresponsible as he is. When they're together, they make each other worse. My mom, Jane, Zaituni, they all know this. But will they say anything to him? No, because they're so afraid to offend him, even if it's for his own good. Alma opened the car door and looked back at the rest of the family. They had just emerged from the shadows of the apartment building, Roy's figure towering over the others like a tree. His arms spread out like branches over the shoulders of his aunts. The sight of him softened Alma's face just a bit. At 5.30 in the evening, our train rumbled out of the old Nairobi station, heading west for Kisumu. Jane had decided to stay behind, but the rest of the family was on board. Kazia, Zaituni, and Alma in one compartment, Roy, Bernard, and myself in the next. How long will it take to get to Home Square, I asked. All night to Kisumu, Alma said. We'll take a bus or a matatu from there. Another five hours, maybe. By the way, Roy said to me, lighting a cigarette, it's not home square. It's home squared. What does that mean? It's something the kids in Nairobi used to say, Alma explained. There's your ordinary house in Nairobi, and then there's your house in the country where your people come from. Your ancestral home. Even the biggest minister or businessman thinks this way. He may have a mansion in Nairobi and build only a small hut on his land in the country. He may go there only once or twice a year, but if you ask him where he's from, he will tell you that that hut is his true home. So when we were at school and wanted to tell somebody we were going to Alego, it was home twice over, you see. Home squared. Roy took a sip of his beer. For you, Barack, we can call it Home Cubed. Alma smiled and leaned back in her seat, listening to the rhythm of the train on the tracks. This train brings back so many memories. You remember, Roy, how much we used to look forward to going home? It's so beautiful, Barak. Not at all like Nairobi. And Granny, she's so much fun. Oh, you will like her, Barak. She has such a good sense of humor. She had to have a good sense of humor, Roy said, living with the terror for so long. Who's the terror, I asked. Alma said, that's what we used to call our grandfather, because he was so mean. Roy shook his head and laughed. Wow, that guy was mean. He would make you sit at the table for dinner and serve the food on the china like an Englishman. If you said one wrong thing or used the wrong fork, pow, he would hit you with his stick. Sometimes when he hit you, you wouldn't even know why until the next day. Zaituni waved them off, unimpressed. Ah, you children only knew him when he was old and weak. When he was younger, hey, I was his favorite, you know, his pet. But still, if I did something wrong, I would hide from him all day. I would be so scared. You know, he was strict even with his guests. If they came to his house, he would kill many chickens in their honor. But if they broke custom, like washing their hands before somebody who was older, he would have no hesitation in hitting them, even the adults. Doesn't sound like he was real popular, I said. Zaituni shook her head. Actually, he was well respected because he was such a good farmer. His compound in Alego was one of the biggest in the area. He had such a green thumb, he could make anything grow. He had studied these techniques from the British, you see, when he worked for them as a cook. I didn't know he was a cook. He had his lands, but for a long time he was cooking for Wazungu in Nairobi. He worked for some very important people. During the World War, he served as a captain in the British Army. Maybe that's what made him so mean. I don't know, Zaituni said. I think my father was always that way. Very strict, but fair. I'll tell you one story I remember from when I was only a young girl. One day a man came to the edge of our compound with a goat on a leash. He wanted to pass through our land because he lived on the other side and he didn't want to walk around. So your grandfather told this man, When you are alone, you are always free to pass through my land. But today you cannot pass because your goat will eat my plants. Well, this man would not listen. He argued for a long time with your grandfather, saying that he would be careful and that the goat would do no harm. This man talked so much, your grandfather finally called me over and said, Go bring me a lego. That's what he called his panga, you see. His machete, you mean? Yes, his machete. He had two that he kept very, very sharp. He would rub them on a stone all day. One panga he called Alego, the other he called Kogelo. So I ran back to his hut and brought him the one he called Alego. And now your grandfather tells this man, See here, I have already told you that you should not pass, but you are too stubborn to listen. So now I will make a bargain with you. You can pass with your goat, but if even one leaf is harmed, if even one half of one leaf of my plants is harmed, then I will cut down your goat also. Well, even though I was very young at the time, I knew this man must be so stupid because he accepted my father's offer. We began to walk, the man and his goat in front, me and the old man following closely behind. We had walked maybe twenty steps when the goat stuck out its neck and started nibbling at a leaf. Then, whoosh, my dad cut one side of the goat's head clean through. The goat owner was shocked and started to cry out, "Ay, ay! what have you done now, Hussein Onyango? And your grandfather just wiped off his panga and said, If I say I will do something, I must do it. Otherwise, how will people know that my word is true? Later, the owner of the goat tried to sue your grandfather before the council of elders. The elders all felt pity for the man, for the death of a goat was not such a small thing. But when they heard his story, they had to send him away. They knew that your grandfather was right because the man had been warned. Alma shook her head. Can you imagine, Barak? She said, looking at me. I swear, sometimes I think that the problems in this family all started with him. He is the only person whose opinion I think the old man really worried about, the only person he feared. We all decided to turn in. The bunks were narrow, but the sheets were cool and inviting, and I stayed up late listening to the trembling rhythm of the train. And the even breaths of my brothers, and thinking about the stories of our grandfather. It had all started with him, Alma had said. That sounded right somehow. If I could just piece together his story, I thought, then perhaps everything else might fall into place. I finally fell asleep, and dreamed I was walking along a village road. Children, dressed only in strings of beads, played in front of the round huts, and several old men waved to me as I passed. But as I went farther along, I began to notice that people were looking behind me fearfully, rushing into their huts as I passed. I heard the growl of a leopard and started to run into the forest, tripping over roots and stumps and vines, until at last I couldn't run any longer and I fell to my knees in the middle of a bright clearing. Panting for breath, I turned around to see the day turn to night, and a giant figure looming as tall as the trees, wearing only a loincloth and a ghostly mask. The lifeless eyes bored into me and I heard a thunderous voice, saying only that it was time, and my entire body began to shake violently with the sound, as if I were breaking apart. I jerked up with a sweat, hitting my head against the wall lamp that stuck out above the bunk. In the darkness, my heart slowly evened itself, but I couldn't get back to sleep again. We arrived in Kisumu at daybreak, and walked the half-mile to the bus depot. It was crowded with buses and matatus honking and jockeying for space in the dusty open-air lot, Their fenders painted with names like Love Bandit and Bush Baby. We found a sad-looking vehicle with balding, cracked tires that was heading our way. Alma boarded first, then stepped back out, looking morose. There are no seats, she said. Don't worry, Roy said as our bags were hoisted up by a series of hands to the roof of the bus. This is Africa, Alma, not Europe. He turned and smiled down at the young man who was collecting fares. You can find us some seats, eh, brother? The man nodded. No problem. This bus is first class. An hour later, Alma was sitting on my lap, along with a basket of yams and somebody else's baby girl. I wonder what third class looks like, I said, wiping a strand of spittle off my hand. Alma pushed a strange elbow out of her face. You won't be joking after we hit the first pothole. Fortunately, the highway was well paved. The landscape mostly dry bush and low hills. The occasional cinder block house soon replaced by mud huts with thatched conical roofs. We got off in nori, and spent the next two hours sipping on warm sodas and watching stray dogs snap at each other in the dust, until a matatu finally appeared to take us over the dirt road heading north. As we drove up the rocky incline, a few shoeless children waved but did not smile, and a herd of goats ran before us to drink at a narrow stream. Then the road widened, and we finally stopped at a clearing. Two young men were sitting there under the shade of a tree, and their faces broke into smiles as they saw us. Roy jumped out of the matatu to gather the two men into his arms. "'Barak,' Roy said happily, "'these are our uncles. This is Yusuf,' he said, pointing to the slightly built man with a mustache. And this,' he said, pointing to the larger, clean-shaven man, "'this is our father's youngest brother, Said.' "'Ah, we have heard many great things about this one,' Said said, smiling at me. "'Welcome, Betty, welcome.' Come, let me have your bags.
1: Context of white supremacy. We will get right to the phone lines. Uh, I will just share one omission, and then I will mute my line so that people have an opportunity to share. Please do not wait until the last minute. If you think you want to participate, the number is 760 569 and the code is 564943pound. Four, four, Press star six if you would like to participate. You have ample time. We have about a half hour or so left, so do not wait until the last minute. The uh, one omission I will share from this uh, portion that we just heard uh, they take President Obama to meet with Ruth who is the white woman that President Obama's father uh, ended up having children with after uh, President Obama's white mother. So he's involved in serial tragic arrangements. So this other white woman, Ruth, she's still uh, living in Kenya or, you know, in the story, she's still in Kenya. Uh, So they left this part out. Uh, Ruth lived in Westlands, an enclave of expensive homes set off by wide lawns and well-tended hedges, each one with a sentry post manned by brown, uniformed guards. It was raining as we drove toward her house, sending off soft, gentle spray through, a, through the big, leafy trees. The coolness reminded me of the streets around Punahou, Mano, and Tantalus the streets where some of my wealthier classmates had lived back in Hawaii. Staring out Alma's car window, I thought back to the envy I'd felt towards those classmates whenever they invited me over to play in their big backyards or swim in their swimming pools. And along with that envy, a different impression, the sense of quiet desperation, those big pretty houses seemed to contain the sound of someone's sister crying softly behind the door the sight of a mother sneaking a tumbler of gin in mid-afternoon the expression on a father's face as he sat alone in his den his features clenched as he flicked between college football games on TV an impression of loneliness that perhaps wasn't true perhaps was just a projection of my own heart but That either way had made me want to run, just as an ocean away, David had run back into the marketplace and noisy streets, back into disorder and laughter disorder produced, back into the sort of ping a boy could understand. We came to one of the more modest houses on the block and parked along the curve of a looping driveway. A white woman with a long jaw, graying hair, came out of the house to meet us. Behind her was a black man of my height and complexion with a bushy afro and horned rimmed glasses. Come in, come in, Ruth said. The four of us shook hands stiffly and entered a large living room where a balding older black man in a safari jacket was bouncing a young boy on his lap. This is my husband, Ruth said, and this is Mark's little brother, Joey. Hey, Joey, I said, bending down to shake his hand. He was a beautiful boy with honey-colored skin and two front teeth missing. Ruth tussled the boy's big curls, then looked at her husband and said, Weren't you two on your way to the club? Yes, yes, the man said, standing up. Come on, Joey, it was nice to meet you both. The boy stood fast, staring up at Alma and me with a bright, curious smile until his father finally picked him up and carried him out the door. Well, here we are, Ruth said, leading us to the couch and pouring lemonade. I must say it was quite a surprise to find out you were here, Barry. I told Mark that we just had to see how this other son of Obama's turned out. Your name is Obama, isn't it? But your mother remarried. I wonder why she had you keep your name. I smiled as if I hadn't understood the question. So, Mark, I said, turning to my brother, I hear you're at Berkeley. Stanford, he corrected. His voice was deep, his accent perfectly American. I'm in my last year of the physics program there. It must be tough, Alma offered. Mark shrugged. Not really. Don't be so modest, dear, Ruth said. The things Mark studies are so complicated, only a handful of people really understand it at all. She patted Mark on the hand, then turned to me. And Barry, I understand you'll be going to Harvard just like Obama you must have gotten some of his brains hopefully not the rest of him though you know Obama was quite crazy don't you the dr- the drinking made it worse did you ever meet him Obama I mean only once when I was 10 well you were lucky then it probably explains why you're doing so well that's how the next hour passed with Ruth alternating between stories of my father's failure and stories of Mark's accomplishment. Any questions were directed exclusively to me leaving Alma to fiddle silently with Ruth's lasagna. I wanted to leave as soon as the meal was over but Ruth suggested that Mark show us the family album while she brought out the dessert. I'm sure they're not interested mother Mark said. Of course they're interested, Ruth said. Then her voice oddly distant. They are pictures of Obama from when he was young. We followed Mark to the bookcase and he pulled down a large photo album. Together we sat on the couch slowly thumbing through laminate pages. Alma and Roy dark and skinny and tall all legs and big eyes holding the two smaller children protectively in their arms. The old man and Ruth mugging it up at a beach somewhere, the entire family dressed up for a night out on the town. They were happy scenes, all of them, and all strangely familiar, as if I were glimpsing some alternate universe that had played itself out behind my back. They were reflections, I realized, on my own long-held fantasies, fantasies that I'd kept a secret even from myself. The fantasy of the old man's having taken my mother and me back with him to Kenya. The wish that my mother and father, sisters and brothers, were all under one roof. Here it was. I thought what might have been, and the recognition of how wrong it had all turned out, the harsh evidence of life as it had really been lived, made me so sad that after only a few minutes I had to look away. On the drive back, I apologized to Alma for having put her through the ordeal. She waved it off. It could have been worse, she said. I feel sorry for Mark, though. He seems so alone. You know, it's not easy being a mixed child in Kenya. I looked out the window, thinking about my mother, Toot and Gramps, and how grateful I was to them for who they were and for the stories they told. I turned back to Alma and said she still hasn't gotten over him has she who Ruth she hasn't gotten over the old man Alma thought for a moment no Barack I guess she hasn't just like the rest of us the phone lines are open Uh, any of the folks uh, who would like to share we have uh, B more uh, Dr. Trav prize 1804 anybody else i will add lines as i see hands go up
3: um i liked how he opened up with the talk of family um that came up again and how he talked about how families were everywhere and i thought about how um traditionally there were like um nuclear families which basically is just several generations living in the household, so the grandmother would still be there along with the mother and father and things like that. Um, And also the talking family, when he said he saw his brother's face on everyone, um, and that's the idea of relating again, uh, community, interdependence, and things like that. So this is like things that keep coming up, him feeling finally like, I guess he's been accepted and recognized and things like that. Um. Also, how he talked about the living conditions again. Um, I believe they were talking about um, there was a particular area that had, uh, I think she said, half a million inhabitants first, and then it was fastly growing, so there was maybe one million. They talked about how the area was ruining Kenya's image, and I thought about um, how even in America, um, basically, property values depreciate when non-whites move into neighborhoods. Um, no matter how tidy and clean the land is kept, just the uh, the whole value depreciating and things like that, um, ruining Kenya's image. Um, also, his description of black females, again, the three words that I wrote down in this segment were stocky, sturdy, and plump. I feel like he's always describing, well, not always, I think maybe there might be one instance where he described, he didn't describe a black female that way, but... He's always describing a black female as uh, plump, sturdy, stocky, basically big. Um, What else? Oh, um, how his, I think it was his uncle or something like that, was talking about he wanted an African woman, not a European woman, because European women were always arguing with their men. And I thought of how white people showed the, the total opposite. They always showed the white women as being submissive, and, uh, the non-white black woman as being angry and arguing. Um, and it also stood out how Ruth basically, uh, when he first got there, uh, she was saying that she wanted to see how his other ch- how Obama's other ch- um, children turned out. And she had hoped that he had just gotten his brains but not the rest of him and she was just basically downing him and talking of his father's failure. Um, and talking about how not meeting him explains how he turned out so well. And I was just like, wow, this is the woman he was in a tragic arrangement with and actually bore children with. And here she is basically just talking negative about him. So, again, it goes to show you that sleeping with white women, I mean, it doesn't solve the system of racism, and white supremacy, and it doesn't mean anything. These uh, non-white males swear that these white women love them, but it's just... <laughs> quote-unquote mandingo, that's all they're looking for. And, yeah, that's what stood out
4: to me. Yeah, and the fact Uh. that she completely just ignored Alma. So, like, Alma wasn't important because she didn't have the credentials or the education, so she just is just eating her food. So I just thought that was, you know, and how she was trying to sort of pump up her son, but at the same time, uh, 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 encourage Obama, but then Alma was just ignored. So I thought that was interesting. Just piggybacking off the previous caller's comments.
5: You know, when, um, when you talk about her, his grandfather, grandfather, he tried to make them eat with forks and have table manners and hit them with sticks and things like that. Um, they said that he went to. We worked as a cook for the white people. I immediately thought about Dr. Claude Anderson when he explains uh, meritorious manumission. Uh, There's only four ways to get free, and one of them is uh, protecting white people's property or saving the life of white people. You're allowed to have more cornbread, and he wanted to uh, he wanted to impress his family or get those values into his family or something i mean i don't have a completely thought out but it seemed like as long as the grandfather took care of white people it was cool <laughs> it's like wow
4: I think the story about the, the grandfather and the goat was really uh, interesting. And uh, it seems like the grandfather was always referred to as acting like an Englishman. So it just reminds me, it's like you you educate someone or you miseducate someone. And just that one person can really cause a lot of conflict if you put them back into their, their uh, home country with just a little bit of uh, English civilization. So it just seems like it hasn't really helped uh, them at all, and it just caused more conflict among non-white people.
3: I agree with that, but as far as the story about the goat, I didn't necessarily think that was so bad. I mean, I feel like um, sticking to your word is important, and I feel like... We as non-white people need to do that more. If we say we're going to do something, then we should
5: do it. Yeah, that seemed like a, a catch-22, though. I mean, if I say I'm going to do something, it depends on who's in the room, whether I'm allowed to do it or not. You know, like my so my, my offspring are in the room. I say I'm just going to do this, I'll do it. But, you know, let's say we go to uh, the bank. (laughs) Uh, Not so much. I'm going to get this loan. Uh, Maybe not. I also, when they said, remember he went to visit his uh, aunt, and um, she was asking for things, so she was asking for money, and say, ah, you're the, uh, you're the important one now. It's like that's a precursor for what was to come, that now he was going to be very important, and he was going to have to give a lot of things because a lot of poor people were going to be asking for things because now he was in a high position now. And it was like he had to make a decision, you know, you got to cut people off because if everybody is your family, then, you know, you're going to be poor. And it seems like he's in that position now where a lot of people are expecting something from him and he's just not able to give it to them. It's kind of like he's letting the uh, the white people know that he's not going to give you know, all the so-called goodies to the, his cousins.
3: That was a good point.
4: Yeah, and he mentions, uh, I think, uh, let's see, the tune he said at, at the end of that when everybody's asking him for money, uh, she says, "I think ah, it's nothing buried. This is what happens with old women uh, who have no husbands." So it was. I was just thinking of the parallels with the United States and uh, uh, not having f- uh, fathers in the home and the economic base. You know, it's not allowed to build up. So uh, everything that we need, all of our basic needs, we we really have to beg for. So it's not really their fault, but it's it's more of the system. That they live in the oppressive system. So, I'm just thinking about the fact of it being a worldwide system, and this is definitely evidence that supports
5: that. Oh yeah, even with the uh, the, the the neighborhood that uh, Ruth lives in versus the neighborhoods or the living conditions. I know that one of the callers spoke about that, but just the the contrast between the living conditions. You know, you think about all of the uh, um, black entertainers who have the white wives you know they don't you know they live in these areas a lot their family may live in poor conditions or the, the wealth goes over here you know Tiger Woods for example I mean I know he's still wealthy but the, I think the, uh, the similarities are easy to see
3: I don't remember what passage this is from, but I, I wrote down unnatural and un African. I remember that being said. It just made me think of how white uh, every, whites are against everything natural. I mean, messing with them, dealing with them. There's no Mahat, there's no truth, no order, no justice, no balance. So I thought of that when I heard of that, those two terms unnatural and un African. Being being unnatural is hold on. Being natural is African, but being unnatural is un African. But being unnatural is white. So
5: yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought, I laughed when um you know, when the son was what's the one, the Roy? He's sitting on the couch with his arms stretched out across with his legs stuck out in the or you know, and he's proud, right? And then he said, yeah, I'm going to go sell uh, trinkets at festivals and the flea market. I'm like, Roy, I've tried that. It's not going to work. <laughs> I could be wrong, Roy. you will have to come with a better plan.
1: so uh, this passage uh it reminded me of uh right after the uh, election a couple weeks ago uh I think it was CNN they did a, uh they did a piece where they alleged to have uh media outlets in Kenya and they were jumping up and down and celebrating and uh they went to some of the the poor areas so you just see these black people who look like they're struggling to get by and don't have anything but they're out Jumping up and down and celebrating in the streets, and you would talk to some of them. They were like, "Yeah, you know, he didn't, uh, President Obama. He didn't come here during his first term, but we, you know, we really hope that uh, now that he's been reelected, he'll come and and see us and and visit with us during the second term." It it reminded me a lot what they were saying in this passage and how they had expectations and all that. He's super important. It it just that that whole scene reminded me a lot of that and the racism, like the images of black people in Africa. It's got to be some sort of uh disorder and poverty it can never be them doing well and showing them making uh you know some inventions or having some business success or technological advances it can't be that it's got to be them just out unpaved roads shanty town heaps of garbage stacked up everywhere and they're just overjoyed that president obama's been reelected yeah I, um, you know I have
5: Oh, go ahead. No, same same difference here. I mean,
4: what's yeah. the difference? <laughs> I, I have some friends uh, who are who are from Africa, and you know, I you know, I just had certain con- pre- preconceived ideas uh, about it, and I thought like if I go there, I can just learn about my culture and my history. But then, you know, he told me, well, it's not like that. They actually look up to Black Americans, and they want to wear the baggy pants and you know, they want to wear the uh, Sean John, and then uh, he sent me a link, and then I was watching Big Brother Africa, and that's all they ask about the Africans who are living in a house. that's like a um, what you call like real world, and all you know they had uh, Carrie Hilson stop by, and all they're asking about is Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls and uh, Mary J. Blige, and I'm thinking like wow. You know, we go over there thinking that we're going to find our culture, and then they're looking at us and wanting to be like us. And so it's just, it seems like the confusion is spreading. So it's just, it's just very worrisome, and that really unnerved me. And Dr. Cambon turn off those jumbo TVs. Yeah. <laughs> but I think black culture, American black culture... It's, it's uh, projected all over the world, and I mean, I think Africa, is, African people are looking at that as the ideal, and uh, my friend, you know, I asked him about that, and he said, yeah, they want to be like that until they come here, and then they realize if you wear in the baggy pants and the sweatshirts, they see how those people are treated, and then they don't want to be like that anymore. That's no longer an ideal, so I thought that was very insightful, what he had told me. Oh yeah. You can go on YouTube and you can find uh, East
5: African Idol, West African Idol, Nigerian Idol, South African X Factor, you know. It's you know, it's the same system over and over and over. It like, gets the living conditions or the media, you know. It's it's amazing. You know, to see it just worked over and over and over again. I mean they be clowning too, so go on YouTube and look that up. Just look for the different idols. From there. not you know, the Nigerian idols. You'll see it. I didn't even you know, they got fried chicken commercials on a Nigerian idol. <laughs> 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 it's crazy. It's racist. Um oh. Did you did you? and at some point um there was somewhere in the story where someone called him this one look at this one do do you anybody recall that and I remember in um one of the debates, I think it was McCain or somebody said this one we want to see how the in a debate one of the um One of the, the, I think it was McCain or somebody, one of the debates, they called him this one, like this guy or this one. And in the book, I think one of the people said, we want to see how this one turned out. You know, I suspect all of his opponents have uh, read the book and they know it probably, you know, page by page.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Got the cliff notes, the whole nine. Uh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced about that. Um, Yeah, I was on throwing as well. Uh, We have about five minutes left. So anybody wants anything they want to get in before we close while just paying attention, uh, different a trend I have observed. And this is one thing where I would see for white people reading this book. Uh, even when they see, you know, the moments where he reveals truth, where he talks about it doesn't really matter if they're so-called good white people, that that's really irrelevant uh, with white people having all the power uh, when they see that. But then when they see his willingness to toss that aside and continue to empathize with white people, identify with white people, excuse their racist behavior, they will see that and say, ah, yes, we can use this one. Uh, and that came out even with Ruth, uh, where she's—I uh, think how long they were there, an hour or whatever—but she spent the whole time just degrading his father and talking about what a failure he was, and how uh, President Obama is successful because his father, because of his father's absence. And they get to the end of that, and he doesn't have anything bad to say about her. He's saying, "Oh, she's just she's sad. She's missing. Him. Don't you think that's what it is? Like that ability to continue to empathize with." racist i think white people would pick up on that and they would see that pattern over and over he does it when his grandmother uh has her racist moment at the bus stop where the black male is asking her for change and he says oh i'll take her you know we don't want to we don't want to have her frightened and out there and being accosted like that you know if you don't want to do it granddad i'll do it myself like it happens over and over when he's working in chicago and the black people are trying to tell him that marty is racist and, oh no that's that's not what it is i mean come on he's trying to help us out that, that's not what it is at all i think they would pick up on that like okay he this is this is a black person who will continue to excuse our racist conduct we can get a lot of mileage out of this one even the beer summit that pam mentioned so often with uh dr gates i think you see some of the th- the same patterns there
5: yeah you know it makes me think of the book race matters you know you know every black person has a potential flag because of the condition, but um, it, it try to make it seem like you don't have to worry about him. He he's good, you know. And we're gonna take the, we're gonna take a bunch of pieces, omit a bunch of parts to this book because we know you, y'all don't like to read anyway. <laughs> so just listen to the good. It's like refining the sugar. You know what I mean refining the sugar all the way down to the to the to the best part to the white to the white part yeah there you go white flour white sugar white bread nothing brown Read race matters,
1: Doctor Cornel West. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. uh, I don't know how many Black people have got the audio book and not read the uh, the text, the unedited text for Dreams from My Father, but uh, I cannot imagine. What you are thinking would be about the book and or President Obama if you just get the audio book and listen to it. I cannot imagine what you would end up thinking about him and you know what all has been said his presidency. I cannot imagine what opinion you would be left with if you just get this and miss a lot of the things that were omitted from the book.
5: Well. If I I tell anybody that they need to listen to the book, I'll probably forward them, you know, the episodes of this um, class. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because when you read the omissions, it just, you know, it makes the living conditions of his family so much, I mean, I want to say worse, but, you know, when the white lady is living in you know, palm trees and green lawns. You say, like, oh, okay, I get it now. I see why they took it out. It's not like all of Kenya looks like shantytown. No. no. It's not in a shantytown. Why is that?
1: Hmm. She's got armed black guards uh, patrolling her neighborhood to make sure that they're safe.
5: Yeah, and a son with a perfect American accent.
4: I wonder what the audio book would sound like if it just read the omissions and then omitted the parts that left in the audio book.
2: <laughs> Boy.
3: <laughs> sound
4: like James, James Evans is what it sounds
3: like. Yeah.
5: <laughs> Shaka Zulu. Not Shaka Zulu, uh 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 Contakente. Man being Warrior. I know where I'm from.
1: You know, and we even and I like I said, with the omissions, I think they reveal a lot of truth about the system of white supremacy. Um, and he says in some of them, some of the, some of the uh, omissions, I think the one the more recent one that's in my mind is when he was on the plane sitting next to the white guy from Britain. Uh, and he says, you know, I was angry. You know, I didn't know who I was. angry. I didn't know if I should be angry at this guy. or And that was a part of his frustration, not knowing where to direct that anger. But at least in my view it doesn't come across that he's really angry even if he's saying it, it it really does not come across that he's got some pent-up rage as many white people suggest that's even a big part of uh, Dinesh D'Souza uh, cowbell would be right there uh suggesting that you know this guy is uh some you know secret Mau Mau 21st century version who's ready to attack white people and take everything that they've worked so hard to build up in this area of the world and that I just don't get that feeling. Uh, I get the sense that, you know, he understands what's happening, but I just don't get a sense that he's really fuming about all this. Um I don't know. It just doesn't come through. And it could be, you know, once you get past those omissions and he goes back to talking about how much he cares for toots and toot and grandpa and his mom and and all that. That certainly could be in. But I think that's important too. that, you know, add that to the context of it all. But that just I just don't get that sense. Do you all really I guess we can we can wrap there for today. The Do you all really feel like he's he's angry when you hear the omissions? You, you feel like he's really he's really angry.
5: No, it doesn't sound like he's angry. As a matter of fact, he's running from the Black Panther <laughs> without the omission.
4: It sounds like he's confused. yeah, it seems like that's the part where there's a lot of tricky editing, you know I mean, I don't know if he if he uh, had a personal journal and then he wrote the book with excerpts from his own journal and then added stuff later. But it seems like when he's about to sort of get, uh, when he's about to sort of get upset about something, then it just changes. That's the end of paragraph, new topic. So, it would be very constructive, I think, to know how the book was put together. You know, the exact way in which it was compiled.
1: See if we can add that next week, bring some background information uh where he talks more about putting it together. Um, I know it was while he was at law school uh, at harvard um that's where the I think the genesis for this this project came together, so we'll see if we can add that uh before we uh finish with this book uh next friday um and the audiobook if anybody if you have some some free time, the interest um who edited the audiobook who made the decisions uh who were the people involved in that project that would be that would be great that's steve Coakley putting some names to it uh who were the people their names their position um that put this audiobook together that would be constructive as well um, cuz they certainly left out uh quite a bit i think they cut out at least half of the book if i had to guess just looking at looking at the text i think they probably cut out about half of it and uh you know, I think these study sessions have evidenced uh, the meaningfulness of what was removed Um we will hopefully conclude all this next week. That should be our last study segment, and then we'll be moving on to something else. Oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> this is from next week. Uh, I studied the pictures for some time until I noticed one last picture on the wall. It was a vintage print, the kind that graced old Coca-Cola ads, of a white woman with thick, dark hair and slightly dreamy eyes. I asked what the print was doing there, and Amma turned to Granny, who answered in Luo. She says that the picture is a p- is... A picture of one of our grandfather's wives he told people that he had married her in Burma when he was in the war hmm wow even in Africa their walls are adorned with white women wow um, we also left out uh, just, I don't have time I'm not able to stick in all of the omissions but there was also a part where he was uh, playing basketball with uh, I think his name is Bernard uh, he's playing; ba- they're playing basketball together. And Bernard asks him about Magic Johnson. Uh, have you seen him play? And you get to watch him uh, play basketball all the time. And he's great. What we were talking about with the influence of uh, the entertainment from this area of the world. Uh, and they also shortly after that, there's a passage where they're talking to a different black person, and he's saying, "Yeah, all the different problems we have here in Kenya, and yeah, we don't have funding, and this, that, and the other." And and then all of a sudden the hiv numbers exploded and 50 percent of the population has tested hiv positive and so now we've got to deal with that that pops up as well but that got omitted Uh, i thought that was significant and i think that definitely would be another one white people would read and thumbs up we can get some major mileage on this um but yeah that's we can pick up on that next week anywho Uh, We will be back tomorrow with the compensatory call in uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Hopefully folks can dial in, share any thoughts. Uh, We'll catch up on some of the news reports. Uh, I know from the first debate, that's the only debate that I missed. Uh, I was kind of still on vacation at that time. And I only recently saw a clip from the first debate where Mitt Romney was talking and he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he said (laughs) that, uh, you know, I have got children. I'm skilled at picking out when people are not telling the truth to me. I'm a father, and I'm accustomed to listening to my children when they're talking, telling me stories and not telling the truth. And I was just like, wow, if I had been listening, if I had heard the first debate when it went down, I would have sound clipped that and played it on the program because I thought it was so uh, racist and paternalistic. Uh, basically, he was it was like he was comparing President Obama To one of his naughty children who was trying to get one over on him. And I just thought, wow, that is that's the way white people think of him. Um, The way they think of him, the way they think of us. Um, Real important moment, I thought, from uh, debate number one that I missed. If I'd been on my job. We would have talked about that way back when. Anywho. Uh, As I said, compensatory program will be tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, We also we will have another white person uh, coming back to visit with us, Valerie Jackson, admitted racist. Uh, She was on the program this summer when we were talking about uh, Jerry Sandusky and child sex abuse. She's in the United Kingdom, so it'll be earlier uh, on Tuesday, Tuesday uh, afternoon. Uh, But The Jimmy Savile case, Uh, she has been following it and what's been going down with the BBC. She said she would be down to come back and kind of update us on what's been happening with all that and the ramifications. So just keep that in mind. That's coming up uh, on Tuesday of next week. I think that's November 27th, uh, and it'll be in the afternoon, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, Stay tuned for that. Always enjoy having white people on the program. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for participating. Great exchange of views. I hope it has been a constructive investment of your Friday evening. You could have been out participating in the Black Friday madness, trampling folks down at the store and snatching items off the shelf. I was thinking about that. They have shown photographs. People have been lined up out in the parking lots, and same thing they always do. I thought we were having such an economic crisis and the looming physical cliff. Uh, The white people do not look like they uh, don't have any coins to waste on new gadgets and color TVs and flat screens and all that. It does not look like they are failing to spend money. Hmm. Again, invest if you think the program is constructive. Uh, You can visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener supported white people opposed. Uh, We are coming up on four years. I have no idea how we have managed to be on the air for four years, but definitely folks who have invested. uh, You are part of the reason we've been able to remain on the air. Uh, We will do our prayer to wrap up. Anyone want to do the prayer to sign us out? I will uh, take care of it myself. Again, if you would like to uh, vote, if you have a selection on the book that we should do next for the study session, you can shoot me an email or post it on Facebook. Either or. Uh, we even got some votes for 1984 during this broadcast. So looks like 1984 is the leading vote getter right now. Uh, if you would like a different book, you should vote and uh, submit what other book you would like to do. Uh, email this untiljustice at gmail dot com. Uh our listeners, investors, uh in Japan, she was saying that the rain sounds very soothing in the background. I can guarantee if you lived here and you were dealing with the rain every day, endlessly, week after week after week, I can guarantee it would cease to be soothing quickly. Uh, Creator, we ask that uh, you aid us in being more constructive uh, in the, our use of words, currency, time, and energy. White people have programmed us to be reckless in all areas of people activity. It is to our detriment and to the benefit of the system of white supremacy. Please help us in making adjustments to our thoughts, speech, and action that will yield the most constructive result in neutralizing white people as soon as possible. And as always, help us to minimize and or eliminate conflict amongst non-white people The people who are most to blame and are causing all of our problems worldwide from Johannesburg, Kenya, Detroit, Oakland, wherever you happen to be in the known universe. The problem is white people. Context of White Supremacy signing out. Thank you all for tuning in.
4: Damn you, Obama.